Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Good evening, everybody. It is another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Uh, I am here by myself. Eric is um, hes having a little bit of flight issues, but he's dealing with that because uh, I think he leaves for his trip for Australia in a number of hours. I think he's down counting down the hours, so he's going to quick do that. So Eric will be in and out, but tonight it is the Bread Lie Roundtable. So we have four guests on today, and we're all going to be talking about Bread Lie. Uh, real quick, I did have one announcement that Eric asked me to make, and that was sent over to us by our friend Travis. Uh, it is about a friend of his, his uh, daughter, Trinity uh, Favza. I probably butchered that. Apparently sent a letter to the governor of Michigan to declare it Amphibian Conservation Week for the state of Michigan uh, and apparently they're going to do a bunch of stuff with that. And uh, they asked you guys to go check out the Instagram page, Instagram page Action for Amphibians to find out more news about that, especially if you're in Michigan. So I hear you breathing. Are you still here, Eric? Yeah, I actually was just going to stop in real quick and, uh, you know, because I'm on hold now Explain. with the airline. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm on hold. No worries. I'm going to be in Australia, but it's just a matter of working out some things. I had like some flights once we got there, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So I, I'm going to leave you to it, man. And uh, yeah, it's a terrible idea. To, uh, Every time that happens, it's a horrible situation, you know? So but anyway, <laughs> right now I see Ralph Austin and Casey on the line. Um, I don't see Mr. I guess the only one we're waiting for is Mr. Mutton. Um, fashionably late mm-hmm. as always unless yeah. yeah he might you know he might call in at like nine fifteen, which he usually is but i'm gonna click you on with these guys and you can get going cool. and i'm gonna go back and i'm sorry hold please <laughs> 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 and i'm gonna go all back right. to try to straighten out these flights so go all right. go 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 do stuff jesus right all right you know. here you go all right go let's ahead. see here's ralph hey ralph austin Hi, ralph, hey guys and Casey. <laughs> there you go and Casey, everybody's here. Hey. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, I'm sorry. Eric's bopping around doing uh, his Australia um, plane thingy. So he's going to be in and out. So it's just, you guys are all stuck with me. So um, Sounds good. But, but how are you guys doing? I mean, you know, uh, thanks for I think, this is, I think this is a return trip for everybody here has already been on the show at least once solo. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 Ah, cool. So you know how it works at this point, but um, I do want to do a quick overview because this is a show completely about bread lie. Um, what is how many animals are you guys working with, and what do you got so far? So, Austin, why don't we start with you? How many bread lie do you have, and how long you've been working with them? Oh, uh, I have got. I mean, I guess. Breedable adults right now. I'm about six, and then I have six. I don't exactly know the number. Um, and then I've got a few neonates kicking around and uh, some yearlings, stuff like that. Uh, been working with them since I believe 2013. I got my Harris line female, so yeah, since 2013. Cool. And uh, yeah, so. All right. Um, 
And Ralph, how many uh, how many individuals and animals are you working with right now? Too many. Um, <laughs> Correct answer. <laughs> I've got I've got about a, a dozen adults, um, and most of them are just coming into the age where they can breed. And I got about two dozen hatchlings that are up for sale. Damn! Wow. Oh yeah, that's that's a good amount. Um, and uh, Casey, what are you uh, what are you working with right now? I've got uh, 3.4 adults right now, mm-hmm. some a bunch of holdbacks, and uh, about 19 babies that are Damn. up for sale. If that counts. You guys, everybody has more than I do at this point because I only got like four. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I am not the uh, uh, the expert here. But I also hear, according to my um, invisible co-host, that uh, Nick is here. Uh, Nick, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. I got you. Cool. Well, Nick, we're just going around and seeing how many bread lie everybody's got. So do you want to throw your number out there? Because I know it's got to be horrible. <laughs> more than all of you guys put together. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. I will have to, it is so many that I will have to estimate, I think about 30 plus adults. That's not counting sub adults and like, you know, three and four year old animals that are just about up to size. I, I'm talking like in my breeding room that I could potentially produce offspring from, I think there's 19 females, uh, just females. That's not counting a whole, you know, all this other stuff, uh, hold back to various, I, I hold back a bunch every year. So there's, you know, if you add in the stuff that's for sale and the secret brettles, I don't tell anybody about <laughs> on my website, uh, probably a hundred and probably 120. Jesus. <laughs> Jeez. All right. Well, <laughs> don't, don't forget the other 34 species of Python I see, but just brettles Pythons. There's, about That's, I have to years, I have to limit it a little bit, but yeah, it's like you know. Um, but anyways, but I don't know if you guys have listened to our roundtables before. We're just gonna ask questions and go around and ask everybody else for their input. If you have, uh, if you want to jump in there, just uh, put it in that group chat, and uh, Eric will mute you on. I have no control, so I'm flying blind. I'm just gonna start talking. <laughs> so um, we'll see how this goes, <laughs> but. Uh, definitely, uh, hopefully we'll have a good thing going here, (laughs) Um, but, uh, I definitely did want to ask you guys just, uh, after we did the whole, how many you got, uh, how are you guys keeping them? How are you guys setting them up and how are you guys raising them up? Uh, I think we'll just go reverse and we'll start with Nick. Um, you know, how are you setting them up and how is it different from the other Morelia you might have? Uh, they're not. And uh, <laughs> I have I have so many freaking snakes in so many different uh, everything from little tubs to big tubs to big cages. It just depends. I mean, generally it seems that the females I actually breed in a given year end up in four foot cages typically, okay, uh, because they're of sufficient size. Uh, I've bred several of them, and I probably will this year in smaller tubs, not smaller tubs, CB one tens, which if anybody knows what that is. It's a tub that has about six square feet of floor. It's the equivalent of a two-foot by three-foot cage in terms of floor. It's actually slightly bigger than that in floor space, but it's okay. still a tub. You know, kind of first-year females. Um, 
And as far as the hatchlings, I just set them up in the same rack as all the other baby carpets. They really require – actually, they require less than any of the others, really, because they don't have this, any issues with humidity or bad sheds or any of that. They're just – they're more temperature tolerant. They're pretty much uh, – they're the easiest out of all of them, if anything. Uh, right. And, uh, and there's um, – uh, what kind of, like, feed schedule are you putting those guys on? I to get me in trouble with some of your listenership. Probably, I always but try I to. Don't, <laughs> I, I don't. The hobby has really changed a lot, and a lot of people are very well-meaning, but they're well-meaning kind of goofballs, and they believe in nonsense. And you see it everywhere you look on social media. People believe all manner of things that are just, you know, I don't. And one of them is like a snake feeding schedule. It's like you want to screw your snake up badly. <laughs> establish a really detailed feeding schedule it's like this is nonsense like like these things are living in like i think some people i swear they think they're living in like some uh you know in a plastic tree somewhere on a hermetically sealed and completely (laughs) sterile perch eating captive bred rodents that are free of parasites and living in immaculate conditions because inside that tree hollow is a nice layer of you know of natural bedding or you know or newspaper or something apparently it's like these snakes live in a dirty-ass tree, in a dirty-ass hole, in a dirty-ass rock crevice, and they are half-starved and they eat some scraggly, half-dead mammal that's as bad as even worse shape than they are, and they do just fine. They don't get to eat every Tuesday. That's insane. They don't eat the same size thing. They eat whatever the hell they can, whenever the hell they can eat it, and oftentimes that isn't very much and very often. So I think, you know, the people that have the hardest time are people that are Worried about, like, you know, should I feed a 100-gram rat? Like, I don't even know what a 100-gram rat looks like because I've never weighed a freaking rat in my life because that's insane. I'm a ran rat. Like, they, if the snake can choke it down, sometimes it's a smaller meal, sometimes it's a larger meal. And the other thing is that individual animals, just like individual people, have different metabolic rates. Their sure. ability to process this stuff. And you'll see this with animals in the same clutch. Where I feed all the babies, I'm doing it right now while we're talking. I'm literally feeding snakes right now. Um <laughs> Because I have to multitask. Thank God for right. Bluetooth earpieces and stuff. Uh, they, you'll feed all the baby room. It takes me a day, day and a half. They're all getting fed the same thing on the same days once they're established. And you'll see animals sitting side by side from the exact same clutch. You feed them exactly the same thing, exactly the same size, and exactly the same quote-unquote schedule. And one grows half again as fast as the other one does. Because it's mm-hmm. just slightly you know, better at converting calories into growth. So... You have to kind of tailor it to, especially when animals are adults. If otherwise, you know, big fat obese snakes. Some snakes need a little more. Some snakes require a little bit of less. And eventually, you kind of get in tune with that and you feed them enough. But enough is a, not a static sort of thing. Uh, if I told somebody to, I, if I told you what I feed my adult snakes, people think I should be arrested for animal cruelty for starving them. It's like I. <laughs> A male Brettles python at my house probably literally eats about eight times a year. A year. Okay. That's it. And it's nothing bigger than a weaned rat. Eight times a year. And you know what? They live forever. They breed like crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it that's, works. That's yeah. I'd be shocked if they ate more than that in the wild, for that matter. It's they just don't. It's just you know, yeah. like about every three weeks or whatever for the months they're feeding, and then there's like four months where they don't eat at all. <laughs> And then on to the, I'm getting ready. I have stopped feeding all my stuff this week. I will not feed any of you yep. guys until like April. 
It'll be like yeah. April before they see your ad. Like it's, and well, yeah, just fine. It's, so yeah, you're right on. Yeah, you're no, right on the thing. No skit, no feeding schedules. But hey, you got to get on to somebody else now. <laughs> no well, that was a great answer though. But um, all right, Casey, um, how do you set your guys up? I'm just gonna go ahead and say that answer about feeding made me feel a lot better. I was afraid everybody was gonna say they said theirs once a week. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me feel better. <laughs> okay, it's it's all right. Moving on. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah, I do uh, four foot cages for my adult females. Uh, males, I do uh, two by threes. Uh, I don't okay. heat my room. Like, my room's okay. in a pretty cold basement. It ranges between, like, 74 Fahrenheit to, like, 64 Fahrenheit, which seems to do pretty well for this species. I give them a hot spot during the day of, like, 88. 13 hours during the summer, 8 hours during the winter. Uh, okay. Babies, I keep them in six-quart tubs. I think that's the word for it. I don't know tubs that well. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that's the general one. Yeah, and then I have uh, 24 by 18 cages for, uh, like, yearlings on the adults. Okay, do you and I'll do, your... like, shelves and perches, stuff like that. Uh, I've okay. noticed the really big ones don't like to perch much. Right. Um, do you find the yearlings like the cages a little bit more than, say, like, a 32-quart tub? Yeah, uh, they really like to perch a lot more, especially when they're small. You know, you go in there at yeah. nighttime. Especially, I like to have a, a day and light cycle, too. Mm. It seems to really help my animals out a little bit. And, uh, yeah, you see a complete difference in uh, activity level between when it's dark and when it's light. As soon as those lights go off, those things are moving around the cage like crazy when during the times when the lights are on. Uh, no movement at all, which is pretty okay. much expected. And, I mean, obviously you, you can see on your guys that uh, when they have direct light or, say, if it's summertime, aren't they a little bit brighter than, say, on wintertime? Um, yes. I, uh, when I came back from Australia earlier this week, I went and looked at the Brettles pythons who have been on a eight hour daytime schedule for like a month now. And they're significantly darker than they were when I left. Okay. So now that you're back, everything's kind of getting a little bit better. Pretty much asleep for a while. (laughs) So yeah, they're they're all in cool down mode and they've been in cool down mode since the beginning of October. Okay. All right. So, um, uh, Ralph, how do you set your guys up? Uh, pretty much the same. Um, my snake room is my living room. It's probably the only difference that I have. And uh, I treat the bread eye just like I do all the Morelia I have here. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably the only difference is I pick walls that are outside walls. So I'll try and get the room down to – 68, so everybody's around 69 below 70, but the bretoli are up against walls that probably take them down to low 60s, so the placement. Uh, I do have a very sunny room, so I, mm-hmm. I see exactly what Casey was talking about. At dusk, they start getting real active. At night, they're active. Uh, I the, the females, I make sure that they're in decent-sized cages with perches, but like Casey said, they don't use the perches much. It seems like They'll use the perches when breeding. You know, I, I'll catch them locked up on the perch once in a while. But I'd say 95% of the time they're on the, on the floor of the cage. Uh, mm-hmm. And in terms of temps, I do the same thing that I do with all my Morelia. I shoot for what Nick taught me in the beginning, 82 and 92. Um, 
and I have heat panels everywhere. So I fight, and I mentioned this last time when I was on the show, I kind of yeah. fight the temperature uh, in the cages with the temperature in the room. I have heating panels in all my cages, uh, and I'll run the AC uh, pretty much through October. It's only been like the last two or three weeks that it's managed to uh, the temperature drop, and I'm not running the AC, and I have not turned on my heat yet, and it's about 20 degrees outside. So, Jeez. And, I mean, uh, it's kind of cool because you guys, it seems like everybody's all in a different area because I'm in Pennsylvania. I know Austin is in Texas. I know, Casey, you're in I'm in Florida, Georgia. Ralph- that ain't close enough. Um, so it's, uh, it's the same thing, anyway. But we're the um, same Florida, okay? <laughs> I all right. Um, Ralph, Ralph, where are you at? I'm in uh, I'm in Illinois. I'm just outside Chicago. Um, oh, geez, okay. And we we had a really good. Uh, I'm excited about this year, and I hope it's going to pan out in the breeding. I've had good luck thus far, but I hate the falls and winters where it's still warm at this time last year in november it was still warm uh this year we got a we had a fall the the Mm -hmm. leaves changed color and then the temperature (laughs) dropped uh usually what happens is we have no fall the snow hits the leaves are still on the trees and all the trees fall down um so so this season it should be really good for the snakes we'll see yeah Uh, and i was thinking the same thing because i think a couple years ago Eric and I were complaining because it was like 70 degrees at like Christmas. And I'm like, this is going right. to mess us up. So yeah, exactly. I, I'm right with exactly. it. Yeah. So, but uh, it's kind of just weird that everybody kind of seems to still have their own thing. And it's like, you're keeping them in your living room. And yep. uh, I mean, is that, have, and I know you're doing with the outer wall thing. It's like, could you think, can you imagine doing that with any other species beside the bread light? Or do you think you'd have, problems uh i tried it i tried it with you know because i do um mandarin rat snakes also and i tried that with Ooh. mandarins and uh it doesn't work really well because you need a cool room so they're in the spare bedroom which works out great so they're already in the 50s um and i just close the room uh so i do it with moralia i also have pygmies i have rough scales mm-hmm. um i've got um I've got uh, Hog Island boas. Uh, I'm doing everybody the same. Okay. Awesome. So, um, and uh, Austin, how are you setting up your guys? Because I know it might be a little bit harder because it's going to get a lot hotter where you're at. Yeah, I fight the the temperature down here quite a bit. That's probably the biggest issue that I have. And so kind of what I do to mitigate that is I keep stuff a lot cooler. Um, I, in the summertime, I don't let my room get above, uh, uh, like 79. I try to keep it like 78 ish ambient, but I also offer like an 87, 88 degree hotspot during, during the day it goes off at nighttime, but, uh, during the day and, uh, yeah, summertime's pretty rough. It's, it's just constantly having to come in. I'm always worried. I'm actually at a point where I'm about to, uh, install camera system in my room so that I can check it because uh, my room's in a garage, which is probably like 75% insulated. And that's a room that I built, but it's still like on the the exterior wall isn't insulated, which helps me in the wintertime for cycling. But in the summertime, I just, I worry it's a little dangerous, I guess, in in my head. uh, Yeah. Because the heat, because we get, we get like 115, 120 degree heat indexes down here. So you got to be on top of it. Um, 
uh, as far as uh, as far as caging. Uh, I'd set them up pretty much like I do anything else, six quart for neonates and gradually grow them up in bins, 16 offer a perch for, uh, any of my carpets. Uh, the bread, the, I feel like from what I see, the, the bread live use the perches a, a lot until they're about two years old. And then it kind of, they're more, they stay on the ground a little bit more. Um, yeah. and then eventually I uh, graduate things into two by, what is it? two by two by fours or whatever so yeah. caging and uh and usually they go from a 16 quart to a 41 and then they go i build these uh it's not quite a christmas tree tub but it's mm. it's like half that size probably like three and a half foot long by two foot wide and i put a perch in that and my adult i've, I've bred a couple adults in those and uh with uh heat lamps that i, I build and and they stay in those until i either have the time or the money to build a full-on permanent cage so Jeez. that's, that's kind of how i do it well, but i mean it's, it's it, one or the other thing it's either time or money isn't it yeah, well, that, one way time money and space those are the three things that always ruin mm-hmm. me so um i've still but, got plenty of space you lucky best. Um, so it's the, um, it's weird because it's like everybody has their own different approach, and mine is kind of on the same as your guys, but extremely different because I keep my bread lie in cages in my snake room with the rest of my Morelia, which is heated, and then they have a panel that gets to 84, but then right around breeding season, like right now, they get shoved into a rack that's in my cool room with all my colubrids and stuff like that. So they go down at night and then they have a spike up during the day so it's kind of like there's obviously 10 million ways to skin this cat but um i guess yeah i've moved my stuff out into so my garage is split halfway like right down the middle and i've got my snake room side and then i've got like my workshop side that's mm-hmm. not heated or cooled or anything and in the winter time i take those big uh, half Christmas tree tubs, and I move everything out there that's going to winter, and they get a heat lamp and uh, good luck, and that's, that's that's what they deal with. They deal with whatever the temperature is out there. And it's funny because uh, I was at, I brought uh, this past weekend was the White Plains Reptile Show, and I brought my bread lie with me, my big female as well as the babies, and I was asked a question: Is that if they do have a larger winter drop, does that affect? you know, how much you feed them, and also do you subject the babies to the cooler temps immediately? Um, so, I'm mean, like, do you kind of treat babies just like you do adults when it comes to these temperatures? Uh, Austin, what do you do? You there, Austin? Or somebody's there. All right, whatever. Skip him. Oh, I, I, um, I'll talk. <laughs> All right, go Casey. Go Casey. So what I do with my breeders is I actually put them in a tub every night, Mm -hmm. and then I move them up against a window because I'm kind of like awesome. I'm from an area that doesn't really get a winter as much as, like, some of these other guys do. So I get my breeders down into the 50s, which uh, I don't do for the babies, but I do let the babies get down to, like, 63, 64, uh, just like all the other adults. And okay. I've actually fed them, and they eat way better when it's like 64 degrees at night. I've noticed. Okay. When I uh, right. when I had my first clutch, I tried to give them a 24-hour heat, you know, an 88-degree hot spot all the time. Yeah. And uh, I had regurgitation issues. And as soon really? as I gave them a night drop, they stopped throwing up. 
it was really weird. Okay. So I've heard it with other yeah. cold weather pythons too. Like I've heard uh, diamond pe- diamond people say that, and uh, Boland people say it a lot. So I don't know if that has anything to do with too warm of temperatures, but it's something I saw, and I gave them a night drop from day one this year, and I never had a regurge. Okay, that's um, weird because I I put my uh, this is Ralph. I put my breadline yeah. in the same rack with my jungles and everything else, and they've all got. A, a hot spot of 90, you know, uh, and they're in a little hatchling tub so they can get away from it, but they don't all cower to the front because then I would turn the heat down. Right. Uh, they seem to do the same thing as all the rest of the Morelia, even though they're not Morelia. I shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> and uh, and they they eat on the same schedule. Yes, schedule, Nick. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a spreadsheet guy. I'm a programmer for for a living. So if if it's not if there's no numbers and there's no chart, I I freak out. But uh, I always <laughs> I always picture the fact that if I don't have a spreadsheet a feeding feeding spreadsheet, which I know is a total pain in the ass, and nobody would ever do that except me, that there's going to be a, a snake that never ate. You know, it's going to be right. going to be dead <laughs> in the tub because it's a hatchling that never ate. But if you feed all the hatchlings on the same day, there's no chance of doing that. But I, I've got so many, for me, you know, where I feel like I have a lot of snakes, even though I don't compare it to other people, um, I feed just a few snakes every night rather than mm-hmm. feeding everybody on Mondays or something. So, but uh, going going back to where, where I uh, put myself in the conversation, I, I treat them exactly the same. It's kind of crazy that you get regurgitations at 80 and then you do. So, do you, uh, Casey, do you do a night drop year-round or just... Yeah, I uh, drop them down to whatever the the room temperature is. Okay. But keep in Man, mind, that was only one time I had those regurgitation issues for like okay. a couple weeks. Right. And that was also for the first couple feedings. So, you know, it might have just been that so the you, fresh babies were a little too uh Right. So you, you, do a night cycle, you do a night cycle on all your bread lie regardless of their age every night year round. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, my room is probably at 64 right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It probably helps you like do speak. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Um, so that's that's awesome, and I like how it's a little bit of a different thing. Uh, Nick, do you uh, you treat your babies like you treat the adults? Same temp, same everything. No, I at this point, well, like everything gets goes from simple to more complex over time. Whether that's you know economies or biological symptoms or snake rooms, it all mm-hmm. just gets bigger and bigger and more elaborate. And a couple of years back, I had to finally, my building was not big enough, so I had to add on a, a, a secondary baby facility just for housing juveniles and babies. So they're okay. not even in the same, they're not even the same building as the okay. adults anymore. And I built it with like subfloor heat, so the floor just warms up and it just stays 80 okay. odd degrees in there. Uh, I use in, intentionally inefficient back heat in baby racks. Uh, because I don't want to overheat them. There's a mm. fine line. Some species, if you don't get them a hot enough hot spot, they won't eat for crap. Uh, carpets <laughs> are kind of, they need to have some sort of heat or they don't want to eat at all. But if you give them too much and they wedge and they sit in a water bowl and cause all kinds of problems and, and mm. do that. So I find I use back heat in most of my baby racks precisely because it's not that efficient, but I don't need it to be efficient because the whole room is warm. I just mm. need a small supplemental so when they eat something, they'll go wedge up against the back wall of the tub, and it works just fine. But it doesn't overheat 
the rest of the tub. So my tub is 80 degrees unless you're literally touching the back wall. Uh, and that to stop it from getting too warm. You're with these guys. I find you're probably going to have more problems being too warm than too cold. Uh, they look right. at, I mean, it, you look at them and they're 60 degrees and everything else would be wheezing and getting sick. And they look like they want to eat still. Like they don't even notice <laughs> the temperatures. People cool their other carpets to breathe them. That is a typical summer evening where these guys are from. Like it's, that's the summertime temperatures. They don't even notice. Their crews are still hungry. It's, you know, it's just it's a lot more extreme environment there. So yeah, I, don't, I keep them. I I keep everything, whether it's adults or babies. I kind of have this like a stratification thing going, where in racks and cages, the animals that are along the because even as much money as I've spent on a facility to try to have an, a facility that I can control everything, you can't. Mm. No. And it's always colder near the floor and warmer near the top. No matter how many fans and how much insulation and how much time you plan, you can't prevent that. So the brettles are always the bottom. You walk around my snake room all around the whole thing and the baby room all around the bottoms, all the racks and brettles <laughs> are the bottom rows of everything. Then the inland carpets, and it's almost like you just go up by latitude. And then the coastal <laughs> carpets, and then the jungle carpets, and then the Darwin carpets, and then the IJs slash poplins, call them the right thing there, uh, at the top. Because there you go, the things up high that are the least cold tolerant and the things down low that actually almost benefit from it being a little colder or can certainly hack, hack it anyway. Exactly. Uh, that's your, Yeah, you should always, anybody's got brittles, if you got a wreck, put them on the bottom. <laughs> Use that bottom cage. Yeah. Put them on the bottom. Yeah, that bottom cage is so sketchy. It's so cold. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> They like that's that. the right yeah. cage for them. No, yeah. it, it doesn't hurt them at all. Like they are, they are. Uh, and what to kind of piggyback off what Casey said about temperature regurgitation and heating. Uh, like things like diamond pythons are just in a different gear metabolically. Like if you fed a jungle carpet a jumbo rat and it looked it swat, looked like it ate a football, and it's all just huh. just, just engorged, <laughs> and it was sixty degrees out, you'd be seeing that rat again in pretty short order. You know. Like, <laughs> No way it could digest it. But diamond pythons will eat just like ridiculously large things and then intentionally move away from the heat. Mine have to crawl four feet off the ground to go under a heat panel for eight hours a day. They'll warm up, they eat, they'll warm up. Then they'll just go sit in the coldest corner away from the heat under some leaf litter and digest magically somehow. And brettle pythons are closer to that. They can digest at cooler temperatures uh, because that's what they're exposed to. It's hot. Well, Casey, if you don't want to talk to you about it, I'm sure you'll get to it. It's like, oh, we'll get to that. You're absolutely roasting in the day, and you can see your breath at night. <laughs> it's one of those places. So, yeah. No, oh, man. It's, uh, it's definitely very cool to see how that stuff works. I mean, um, and uh, do you guys feed? I, I kind of noticed with my guys when I hatch, every time I hatch out bread lie, the babies don't want frozen thawed. They tend to jump more towards live prey. Have you seen that as well, or is it just? It almost like it seems like they shy away from it. Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> they like the live prey you better. Know, initially, for sure. In my experience. Yep, Ralph, I think you were jumping in there. Yeah, absolutely. Any 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 hatchling is going to jump at a, a live one before frozen thawed. You know what's crazy is my first year. Mm. that I had Bredeli, they were, that clutch was kind of nippy and aggressive, and I got 75% to eat frozen thawed. 
right <laughs> off the bat, which is and, and I and I called Nick and said, Nick, this rentals are so easy. Seventy five percent ate frozen thawed and he he just He's on the other line thinking, this guy's nuts. <laughs> I mean, what's, what's the chances that's going to happen? Um, but, it, uh, you know, it's it's weird, for, and, and probably just because I'm looking at him so closely and I have just a few clutches, it, the, the same pair can breed from year to year, and sometimes mm. the, the clutch is real passive, um, not aggressive, not not, you know, just really shy, let's say, and then mm. it's really hard to get them to feed. And then you've got the next year, the same pair will have a clutch, and they'll be outgoing, maybe even a little bit on the, you know, where they want to nip kind of side. Yeah. Or, and, and they will strike prey more, more readily, you know. So uh, it's kind of hit or miss, and you just got to do what you got to do. Um, but uh, first thing I, do, I always try is frozen thought, and anybody who took it, that's what they're going to get forever. And, and uh <laughs> Then I go. Then I go to live, and then you go to scenting and everything else. But uh, I find it really similar to the rest of the carpets. Yeah, yeah. I I I usually try to do the same thing. Um, Austin, I think we have you back now, right? Yeah. Okay, if you can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Um, okay. So uh, yeah, I I, I would say to piggyback off of his thing that that Ralph just said, I very similar experience. Uh, clutches from the same parents coming out. Uh, the first year I bred, uh, the clutch came out as a uh, pretty, pretty uh, defensive, I guess, kind of outgoing. And uh, I ended up having to feed them live, most of them, to get them going. They wouldn't, they wouldn't do have anything to do with the frozen thawed. And then that next year, uh, I I let that same female and male breed again, and I had a, I maternally incubated that clutch. The, the babies came out with a lot of yolk in their gut, and uh, and I just kind of like waited them out until they looked like they had digested all that. So two or three weeks, and uh, I offered frozen thawed, and they were pretty mellow. They weren't nippy at all or anything, and uh, I got probably eighty five percent of the clutch to eat on frozen thawed that first go around with that 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 clutch. And I don't know if it was the maternal incubation or what, but it, it was interesting. Don't let Eric hear you say that, because then I want to have to do that conversation all over again. So um, I mean, they're damn good maternal incubators. I mean, well, and um, I wanted to ask you, Austin, do you uh, subject them to the same temps as your adults? And also, I know you have uh, younger inlands. Do you kind of do the same? Is do you use the same approach for the inlands that you do with the bread life? Uh, my plan is to eventually use the same approach with the inlands, but with my uh, yearlings, I don't. Uh, they get a drop like anything that I don't move out of my snake room, so probably like upper 60s, and I kind of slowly, gradually move them into that. I don't just drop them down in the 50s that first year, but uh, by their second year, I'm cycling them like I do the adults. Okay. Cool. That that that's probably what I would do if I had inlands, but I don't have any yet because I need space for colubrids. Anyway, um, so you gotta get them. Um, you gotta get some inlands. No, inlands no, are cool, that. man. No, they really are, guys. Nick like Mutton the real is Zan- way. Zantic. Nick Mutton is on the phone. Okay, you can't start that because 
that is very dangerous. All right, so <laughs> you know, I, you know, I just happen, you know, I just happen to have some available too. I know. Uh, See, that's why. You. That's why we can't talk about this shit. <laughs> I, can't I, can't do I, do have a, I have a twenty. I have a twenty seventeen female. I can you. I can give you this. Uh, just ate her. Just ate a rat for me. Uh, yeah. You're breaking right. up there, dude. I can't hear you. Anyway, um, so. <laughs> you, do the, you do the same thing with the animals that you do with your bread lie. It's a piece of cake. I know, but I don't have room. I have so many other things like king snakes. Anyway, um, so, uh, obviously, you guys have all had success with breeding. Um, you know, what do you guys do? Uh, Nick, can you walk us through your breeding kind of like when do you bring everybody down and how low do you get them? Uh, I just started this process yesterday. Okay. Uh, I see people already having things ovulating and can breathe. I know, up. right? I haven't even started doing anything yet. Like, kidding me? Like, <laughs> I, I've, I've sometimes waited until January 1st to start cycling. Like, you kind of get to choose when winter is. So, uh, make true. it real simple because uh, there's about a million ways to do everything as you listen mm-hmm. to the different opinions and views. Turns out there's a lot of ways you can be successful. Yeah. Um, what I do is what I have always done because I cannot beat the success rate that I typically get. So why would I change anything? If it's near perfect, leave it alone. That works fine. Uh, I cycle my entire building for four months, sometimes three and a half. I basically gradually step the nighttime temperatures down over the course of a month. At the end of 30 odd days, uh, my daytime temperatures are still about 82 ambient, and it's about 68, 70 at night. So basically three degrees a week to kind of gradually let them acclimate to the cooler temperatures. The bread will find out that isn't enough because at that degree, they, that's still summertime for them. They don't know. Uh, I then take them out of my snake building because there's no corner in that building that is cold enough. And mm-hmm. I put them in the spare bedroom in the house where I keep my diamond pipe out, and I open the freaking window. Keep in mind, I'm almost in Canada, so uh, it gets, you know, if I'm lucky, it'll get down into the mid-50s. Like, that, it's hard to get it any colder than that, but it doesn't matter. They get, as long as you don't need to get into the 50s to breed these guys. Uh, okay. It certainly won't hurt. And there was somebody, I can't remember the name of the guy, I sold him up. It's like a surplus adult, because sometimes I have so many of these things, obviously, i got to sell off an adult here and there. And he had mm-hmm. bred them, and he, oh, I bred them, and I, I he cycled them down to, like, 45 degrees something. Oh, my God. Like, I've done that. I'm like, I'm like dude, that's not, <laughs> I've that's done not necessary. Yeah, I'm like, oh, wow. 42, 45, I'm like, woo. <laughs> but and they're oh. fine with it. It's, it's, it is not necessary. I don't want anybody listening to this to think that they need to do that. It's just to say that it won't really hurt them if you do. I, I found that. Getting into the low 60s seems to be the sweet spot. Anything below that is, you know, if it gets colder than that, so be it. But I don't really, it's not really essential or anything. But it certainly okay. won't hurt them. Is anybody, like, like I, I know, Nick, you have all the really, you have all, a bunch of really cool projects. Are you ever, like, I don't know, a little gun shy? Because this is my first year working with Stonewash. And I'm like, I'm going to now put this python down to, like, 60 degrees and like everything in my head is like don't do it they don't do well down there but it's a bread lie it can handle it but i mean you ever get a little bit gun shy about this or maybe when you first started about dropping them down i'll say i i do 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, well, of course. I mean, when I first did it, I was really nervous because I had them on an outside wall. And I'm yeah. thinking, okay, I'm taking everybody down to 69, uh, 68, the room. And holy shit, how cold is it in that corner? If they go down in the 50s, I'm sure I'm going to have respiratory infections like crazy. Right. Um, right. So, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, the way Nick taught me is the way he did it when he first bred carpets in a room the same way I am. So I, I cut the I cut the power on basically uh, with on, on the uh, heat for four hour interval. Then a, then a, a, I basically do it over four weeks. So I'm, right. I look at it this way: that it's happening gradually, and they're they're getting their heat during the day, so I don't get as nervous. And I guess because knock on wood, I haven't had an RI. Um, I know I can they, they can handle it. And if I hear crazy stories like 40 degrees and crazy stories like eating in the 60s, then <laughs> I'm, what I'm doing is not the extreme for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, for sure I get for sure I got nervous, you know. And I every and I would have my inlands in the corner on the bottom. And every year when I would warm them up, I'm 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 listening to them to, to, to figure out if they had an RI or if that was a hit, you know. You're wheezing, yeah. Exactly. So, but that's just me. Uh, well, uh, I mean, it's, it, don't worry, it's me also. So I don't know. I mean, if, uh, I think initially it was me initially, but uh, I I don't know. I feel like once you put them through, I kind of just. Threw caution to the wind. I was real worried, and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do this. Let's see what they can handle that first year. And uh, that was the year that I got them. I temp gunned them at 48 one day, like early in the morning. A front came in, and I forgot to shut the window in the room that they were in. And uh, it got down to 48, and I never had an issue. And I feel like as long as they get that heat during the day, you'll be okay. I don't. They're just tough, you know? Yeah. I had a I had a bretelized stack I had a bretelized stack of cages in the winter that I was futzing with the lights because I I turned lights on and off in the cages like like a you know and I unplugged the heat they went out they went without heat for like two weeks when they were supposed to be heat cycling and I thought for sure I was gonna I was gonna kill them and they were fine <laughs> it's uh, so bulletproof. It's, it's they're they probably didn't they're, even they're, they're, probably didn't even notice. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. Why didn't even notice? <laughs> didn't even wasn't uh, even it was a non-event for them probably. <laughs> I I do love I do love the accidental experiments like when I forgot to plug in my incubator and found out that carpet eggs can hatch at 82 degrees, but it just takes a very long time. So you know, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that story. <laughs> accidental experiments. So it's like that. Um, the best time. Of course. Uh, Casey, were you ever kind of a little nervous about this kind of stuff? Uh, do you want my advice, Owen? Do it. Go for it. Yeah, quit being <laughs> a baby and just do it, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's, a, He's a brave young man. Damn. Yeah, yeah dude. Back in uh, 2017, <laughs> I took my hypo and my stonewash brittle pythons down to 48 degrees. I and do. I got a clutch of eggs. So... <laughs> All right, well, there you go. One, yeah. one, another episode where Owen's being told to get his big boy pants on. So, you know, seems to be a theme. But, uh, <sighs> yeah, yeah, what I do is I uh, I cool everything. I stop feeding everything, like, maybe the last week in September. All right. And I start cycling down the lights, 
you know, from 13 uh, hour days to eight hour days. And then whatever I want to breed, I, uh, starting normally first week in November, uh, I was mm-hmm. in Australia first week in November now, so I didn't get to do it, but right. I'll just put them, put whatever I want to breed in the tubs. I will move them out of the snake room and I will set them right up against the window that's cracked. And if it's okay. a really warm day uh, and I have a locked up porch, I'll just put them outside. So I try to get them down to uh, usually like upper 50s, low 60s. They have gotten down to the 40s with, okay. you know, I've gotten eggs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, there you go. I mean, uh, And I do that like for a month and a half usually. Usually that's my thing too is I, I usually separate them and put them out with my king snakes and pine snakes and I drop them down to about the uh, 60s maybe, probably closer to 60 degrees and then I – take them inside and put them together. Um, before we get into, like, you know, eggs and babies, I did want to ask Nick, because, you know, he did write the book, um, why Bretelli are so isolated where they're at in Australia, and uh, uh, what does that mean for them just as a Bolota species? Uh, well, that means that they're not a Bolota species. That's, yeah. uh, that's largely what that means that they aren't one. Uh, it's a complicated thing. Uh, basically, what happened? Australia. Everyone's heard of like the supercontinent Pangaea, uh, mm. starting the late Triassic, 230 odd million years ago. Pangaea breaks up, and first it splits north south into two supercontinents: Laurasia in the north, Gondwana in the south. Gondwana persisted for some time. Uh, which is basically South America, the Indian subcontinent, Australia, Antarctica, and Africa. Uh, all of it started when that started when Gondwana. This is why you also have boas in New Guinea and in, in the Solomon Islands and this kind of and in Madagascar is because they've been there this whole time. Hmm. Uh, the yeah, they didn't swim to get there. They were just always there, and the ground underneath their feet drifted that far. Hmm. This. Uh, what happened, the last two continents that we would recognize today that split apart from each other were Antarctica and uh, Australia, which remained joined together for a long time. Then Australia broke, broke off and starts drifting north, which then created the circumpolar Antarctic curtain, circumpolar current that is why Antarctica is frozen, because prior to that point there were forests in Antarctica and lakes and shit. Mm. Uh, so... Australia starts drifting north closer to the equator. It's a long way from the equator when it starts this trip. But uh, from the, the climate changes dramatically because of ocean currents after it breaks from Antarctica. It drifts north, and beginning about 35 million years ago, not terribly long after that event, uh, you have, in the, if you ever heard of the Miocene epoch, an epoch of geologic time, uh, the Miocene period, it, you started to see a, a trend of aridification. Australia which prior to the Miocene was mostly covered in, like, deciduous forest all the way clear to the center. There's petrified wood out in the desert in the middle of Australia because it was all wet, humid forest. Starting in the early, Mi- early to mid-Miocene, it starts drying out. And so Australia's been in a persistent state of drought for roughly 30 million years continuously. It just keeps getting drier and drier and drier. So all those forests, it was all, Australia's all forests, 35-odd million years ago, and then that forest starts shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, and it starts shrinking in the center and moving, radiating out towards the outside edges. This is the same event that isolates Brettles Pythons is also what isolated Imbricata in the west. 
okay. when the forest in between, you can no longer get to breed with related your relatives because there's an impenetrable desert where there's no suitable habitat that grows in between them. Brettles basically live in an oasis of sorts. If you ask Casey, he's been there too. It's like it's <laughs> it's a desert in Alice Springs. It's just a slightly more agreeable desert than is what surrounds it. So they're in an island in the middle. They're in a desert that's surrounded by an even drier desert, and they can survive in the desert. They can't survive in the outlying areas. They're just too dry, and mm. that's what isolates them. But that trend started 35 million years ago, and that's why they're so genetically distinct, because they've been out there by themselves for a very long time, plus or minus 15 million years. They've been isolated because in this little time. And even where they're at, they're not everywhere. They're little gorges and dry river, but they're in little pockets of habitat within a pretty tight geographic area. And, and that's okay. it. That's why they're separated, and that's why they're not a spelota. Uh, so, the amount of genetic difference between them is vast. Uh, it's not okay. even a close call whether or not they're uh, – <laughs> anybody, anybody at this point in 2018 that's still saying they're a subspecies just is, you know, probably a flat earther or something. Uh, the evidence is – well, I mean, there are people that won't accept the truth even if it's like – a completely obvious. I mean, yeah, yeah <laughs> and this is one of those. They're morphologically distinct. Their scalation is different. They're geographically isolated. They're, they're, I mean, everything you would use to decide if something is a species or not, they meet, they cross any threshold you want to put out there. But, you know, I don't care if they have preemptive tails and you think they kind of look like a carpet. It's not a spelota. It's just not. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> And now there's an for that matter, which is equally so, as genetically distinct. So that's so, so basically they, like didn't, it's a... they didn't cross the desert to get where they are. They've just the been desert. where they always were, and the desert formed around them and blocked them, blocked them moving out of there. So they're <laughs> kind of hemmed in by that. So there is no intergrade zones like you have with jungle or coastal, because around them is nothing <laughs> but horrific arid desert. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, you never say <laughs> never. The weird thing is when Graham Gow described that species, he described, you list like a, you know, your your holotype specimen, and you sometimes say what's called a paratype, which is like additional mm. animals you'll preserve. One of the ones, he, he did a weird thing where he designates like 12 other animals as paratypes, which is kind of unusual to that many, but whatever. One of them was from a locality that is like 350 miles away from all the rest of them, at a place <laughs> called the just just called quote unquote the Granite. It's just off the main. It's a little de- detour off you know off the main road, which isn't much of a road itself, from that goes from Alice Springs up to Darwin. Uh, but it's uh, it's incredibly far away from any other known population. But is mm-hmm. that? mislabeled. I mean, Gal also thought that an Owen Pelly python he found was a carpet python, too. So I, I kind of wonder, was that actually a Brettles python? Was that mislabeled? Was it a extremely southerly ranging Darwin carpet? I don't know. I'd love to go there and see if you could find more. But So there may or may not be a weird disjunct population of them. But I've not, you can't even find that place on most maps. It is that difficult. It would be that difficult to even find the place, but it, it's a place. I found it on Google Earth. It exists. <laughs> so, so. so there, there uh, maybe. It, Australia is one of those places, which is kind of its charm, in my opinion, is that it mm-hmm. is so 
there are still mysteries and unknown things in Australia because while it's a very mo- thoroughly modern industrial nation, its population is so unfathomably small relative to its landmass that there are you guys are going to Eric, you're going to find out tomorrow. You'll drive for a hundred miles and not see another living thing. It's this like. It's a land that time forgot. There are places you can be and look around, and you will see for 100 miles in any direction, and there is not a single sign, save for the dirt road you rode in on, that human beings ever existed on the earth. It literally looks like it is completely untouched. And when there's nobody living there in huge, vast areas, you can't really say what's there and what's not there. There's no evidence that they are. there is, and there's no evidence that there are integrate zones, this kind of stuff. But there's just so much uninhabited space where you can't, you always got to put an asterisk by that because, like, probably not, but who knows. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's, that's killer. I mean, that's, that's really weird. And uh, I guess the term uh, Brettles carpet python is just horribly wrong. Uh, they're, Okay, the, one last thing on that, and I'll let you get on somebody God. else. The, uh, <laughs> the relationship between carpet pythons and Brettles pythons and in, inland carpets, or not inlands, but uh, Invercata for that matter, is they are considered sister taxa. Mm-hmm. So the, the lineage of the carpet python group, these snakes that we all dump in, they're really the only things that have any business being in Moralia uh, at all, but because uh, roughies and chondros need to be and a resurrected chondro python, but that's a whole other soapbox. <laughs> um, that lineage, that lineage forks off into three branches. There are three branches to that Moralia clade, and one branch is leads the Imbricata, one branch leads the Brettles, and the other branch leads to everything else. All the <laughs> poplin carpets, coastal jungles, Darwin's diamonds, and inlands are all on one branch, and the other two branches only have a single species. So those when they have that relationship, they're considered sister species. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. All right. so they can yeah. be interbred. Well, yeah, but I mean, the only thing that stops humans from being able to interbreed with a chimpanzee is that we had a couple chromosomes fused together. I mean, it wasn't for that. <laughs> the, the genetic distinction between a human and chimp is less than the brettles python in a jungle carpet. I mean, it's holy crap. <laughs> well. <laughs> We, we have a chromosomal anomaly that really is the only reason you can't breed with a chimpanzee. Not that I'm advocating for you doing that, God, no. but it's, <laughs> it is, it's literally that. It's, you know, it, also hybridization. I mean, people make the, in the reptile hobby make this mistake, and they think that because things can hybridize, they must be more, really closely related, which is complete nonsense. The reason why, you know, reptiles can hybridize uh, a lot of it has to do with your sex chromosomes and that they maintain, they don't have very di- well differentiated sex chromosomes. It's just, uh, they're able to hybridize, a lot of animals are able to hybridize over vast sort of differences genetically and still pull it off, whereas mammals cannot. You don't see that with mammals. We're right. different. But, right. So we, we shouldn't apply the rules of, you know, as they apply to mammals to everything else. Cause, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're vastly different genetically, but, you know, even some of those things still. You know, carpondros are still fertility challenged, are they? Despite what people keep trying to tell us otherwise, it's pretty clear they are. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, no, the, the, that's never working I would, out. I would just say on your big breeding project or on your male carpondro, um, it's probably <laughs> not going to go anywhere. Uh, <laughs> really? Because now that totally screws up my entire breeding season, dude. I mean, why is anybody know. why is anybody surprised? Oh, <laughs> these two snakes that I managed to make a hybrid from whose lineages are 35 million years removed from each other. 35 million years. That's the distance between a chondro and any carpet. That's massive. <laughs> and you're wondering, like, oh, I can't believe there's fertility issues. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's, that's an insane amount of difference. I can't believe they pull off the first-generation offspring. That's a minor miracle. Uh, why are you surprised? <laughs> True. You are, <laughs> you are correct. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, let's go back to the uh, and the uh, eggs. Uh, Ralph, um, how do you set up uh, your eggs? Do you have you have you ever done maternal incubation or do you strict artificial? No, no, that's one of those things that uh, you talk about fear. That's one of the things I fear. Well, it's. Uh, Let's put it this way. I've, I've only done uh, bread alive for, for three years. So um, I could have, and there's other snakes I could have. I just haven't. I'm I just afraid to beat up a female like that. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel bad for any of my snakes that haven't eaten, you know, through the winter. And I would feel even worse uh, if I but – I, but I've seen it, and I, and I know it's successful. I know they're great at it. And it's – like everybody says, it's the coolest thing to watch the uh, – Hatchlings come out of you know the, the maternal incubation, but uh, I have not done that. So uh, basically, I, I pull. I do. I probably don't have to do this, but I do yeah. um, nest nest boxes, um, and yeah. this probably just comes from the fact that I do uh, Asian rat snakes that always have a uh, sphagnum moss hide. Uh, so I do that for my my all my pythons. Um, they probably could lay their eggs on the. Uh, I'm trying to think if anybody's done that, laid their eggs on the aspen. I don't think so. I think everybody's always used the hide I give them um, and have no problems, but I do that. And then I just uh, pull the female off the eggs, and I've got a huge uh, container that was uh, – or um, cage that was made to hosp- – it's a hospital cage for kittens, and that's my mm. incubator. And it's probably way overly accurate and expensive, but – um, I'm able to fit a whole bunch of um, egg boxes in there, and all the humidity's inside the egg box, not the incubator. So every year I take the boxes out and I'm done. You know, there's nothing to do with the uh, incubator. It's it's pretty much dry in there. Um, I throw it in storage and I pull it back out when I need it. Um, that's how I set up my eggs. Okay, um, and. You say, and I know you mentioned bedding is aspen, so you, you do straight aspen throughout the cage and then uh, just, I guess, moss inside the hide box? Exactly. Okay. Same sphagnum cool. moss that I, I get for the uh, Asian rat snakes. <laughs> I, I am, I, I'm familiar with that. I have the, uh, my Chinese uh, king rats have it in their hides. So, um, yep. but yeah, awesome. Um, have you noticed anything about... Uh, the hides, like, are they are the females pretty good about putting them in there? Or are they kind of reluctant to, uh, like, maybe drop a clutch inside that bin? 
Yeah, you know, um, there's a, been a couple times where I was afraid that they weren't going to mm. take to it. Like I would just get lazy and put it in there too late. But mm. I can't remember anyone ever not laying in one of those containers. Um, even even some of the other uh, other snakes that you know I bred in tubs. Um, they, they take to the uh, to the moss, so I haven't had that happen. Okay, that's awesome. I, I mean, I, even, I know with my even if they have even even if they have slugs, they're still everything's in the container. The slugs are <laughs> just pushed, nice pushed aside. <laughs> yeah, it's nice of them to put it all in one spot. I mean, you know, yeah, exactly. It's um, I, I I think I had issues with my coastals. Is they would put it on the newspaper, or they would go underneath the newspaper, and then I gave them hides that I didn't have to uh it's a bin all on its own so if they're in the hide I don't necessarily have to pull them out or move and expose them when I go cleaning I can just pull the whole hide out with them in it and that seemed to be what clicked is that's when they started laying in them I guess because they probably felt more secure is that like I mean can you do that with your yeah you know it, yeah, I think so, and it, it makes it a lot. I, th- you know, I, well, every time I pull out uh, I, these uh, lay boxes, nest boxes, I think you know I'm just creating more work for myself. But once <laughs> the eggs are there, it's really kind of simple. I can put the tub on a table and take pictures, and mm. I don't have to worry about trying to get a camera in a cage. That would be nuts, you know. Um, and then getting the snakes off of the eggs. I don't have because you know I have a I have cages that are um, probably about eight feet high you know like it's that's the highest cage and then cages that are on the floor you know so I got to get on my knees to service those cages um, I'm you know I'm in an apartment so I'm using every square inch I can so if I had to reach down and grab a snake off of or try and pull the eggs away from the snake while I'm on my knees that would just be a pain in the ass so yeah. it really works out. It, it, yeah. You know, in, in the end, it's it's more work, but in the end, when I'm pulling eggs, it's it's quite simple. Work makes it makes it a lot easier in the long run. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, Austin, uh, how do you uh, set up for eggs as well as um, deal with moms and stuff like that? I mean, you were talking about breeding in those big, they're the Christmas tree tubs, right? Oh no, <laughs> we're Austin off again. Here? All right, Casey, same question. <laughs> uh, what was the question? Um, how do you set up for eggs and how do you deal with uh, moms? I mean, did you do you end up breeding you, – you breed in cages, right? I do breed in cages. Okay. Um, so I have not done maternal incubation yet just because mm. my female refuses to wrap her eggs. She scatters them around the cage, and I pick Wonderful. them up. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Oh my god. I would god. love to try maternal incubation, but she doesn't want to. She's a crappy mom. Please take care of your babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <That's all I laughs> but yeah, yeah, I'll give it a try one day. Um Okay. So for some of them I use either cardboard boxes or in a couple of my cages uh, I've got a um you know those chicken incubators that are made out of styrofoam? Yeah. The, the I have like, one of those that I like I just took the top and I cut a hole in it. So it's insulated uh-huh. and stuff like that. They seem to like it pretty well. Um, they'll lay in that. I never thought about that because, you know, I, I use those crappy-ass um, styrofoam chicken incubators for my first clutch of carpet pythons, but I never thought They're of it as, They're way better like, hiding than they are an incubator. 
they're a very good styrofoam box. That's pretty much it. <laughs> All right. Well, whatever. That works. Um, but, so, yeah, then I just... Good. Oh, then I just uh, pull the eggs out. I set them up uh, kind of, I guess, the new way of doing the uh, the light diffuser over uh, wet, wet perlite. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. I set my incubator... Uh, I made a. I've got a homemade incubator out of an old fridge, so yeah. I make my eggs. I set them over to like 86 or 87. I don't do the 88 like most people do, right. just in case. Just in case it gets a little too hot in there. Mm-hmm. But right. yeah, they seem to hatch just fine. So that far, way. so good. <laughs> I mean, you're you're pretty much right where I'm at when it comes to uh, um, incubating bread lie eggs. Um, I mean, I pull mine and chuck them into an incubator, and I think my incubator set at 87. So, and I haven't had any problems with the, you know, the 100% hatch rate. Um, <laughs> but, but whatever. It's uh, again probably multiple ways to skin this cat. All right, uh, Austin, you're back now, right? Damn it! <laughs> Austin, you got me or no? Can Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I yeah. got you. Okay, sorry. I, every time I move two feet, so I went outside. Sorry about that, guys. Um, <laughs> whenever I uh, whenever I set my stuff up, uh, as far as artificial, I just I use perlite because I can't stand vermiculite. It gets everywhere mm. and it's just a nuisance. Uh, and I just put a crap load of water in there and put the light diffuser on top, and I'll throw it in. I've got a uh, uh, wine cooler that I converted into an incubator, and I'll cook them at about like. Oh no! No oh, crap. Well, <laughs> you let's know, say this you cooked be, them at 80, 87 let's, also. Let's say eighty-seven, <laughs> and we'll go with that. Um, and uh, I'm we'll at say, I'm at eighty-seven point I'm at eighty-seven point five, and I use perlite also. Eighty-seven point seven. So see, it's not that hard. So, um, but <laughs> when he comes back again, I want to ask him how he breeds them in tubs because right now I got mine in forty-one quarts, and there's they're forty-one quart big ones, and there's no room for multiple bread lie but those christmas tree trubs have always kind of intrigued me have you guys ever kind of thought about that kind of stuff i've thought about it before but i have not been able to uh get a rack made that would fit a christmas tree tub Mm -hmm. i do kind of use like hybrid rack cages where i've got like it's a cage but you can pull it out so i've got like a radiant heat panel and i've got the lights on it but i can also you know pull it out and clean it like a tub for my males, okay. at least. So I've thought about doing the Christmas tree uh, tubs a couple times. Okay. Crap. <laughs> All right. Well, we're just dropping everybody today. Hello? Um, oh, I'm here. All right. <laughs> Ralph, have you, I mean, have you tried doing any kind of tub things with these guys? Uh, no, oh. not really. Um, mm. I think the only time I put them in a tub was maybe a a, a garbage can to, to uh, change cages, you know, clean okay. cages. That's about okay. it. Breeding them, no. You know, I got the cages in the tubs, or you know, the rack system, rack tubs. So, um, I mean, well, I'm raising hatchlings in hatchling tubs, and then as I probably, <laughs> in terms of perching, it's probably working against me that I'm raising them in, in tubs 
And then when they get to a certain size, I'm moving them to a cage. And they probably mm-hmm. missed that point where they would really use the perch, you know. But um, I don't do – the females, I make sure they get they get cages. Uh, for the first year, I'm trying it with um, – with some inlands that are smaller, but they're of age. So they're, I'm going to try and breed them in tubs and I'm doing it for the first time with Darwin's in tubs. Um, and we'll, we'll see how that goes, but not bread don't, You know, the tubs, tubs I'm using aren't big enough. I do have some Vietnamese mandarins that have massive tubs. I could probably get away with it in, in, in that rack. Yeah. I kind of thought about that stuff. Um, it just—it's one of those things where I have—I have racks and cages, so it's kind of all up in the air for me. I'm not sure which one I can totally do. Uh, I mean, if the tub's big enough, it's the, it's the same difference, right? I exactly. Mean, the only thing you can't do is offer a perch, but what, from what everyone's saying, at a certain age, you don't use the perch anyways. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Austin, you back? Uh, you back with us? Mm. All right, we may have to wait for the problem is, is that I'm not running the board, so I got to wait for Eric to get off the phone with Air New Zealand to switch things over and then let me do stuff. So um, we're kind of at the mercy of that. Um, so we'll get Austin back on in a second. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to talk to Casey about because you when did you get back from Australia, Casey? I got back November 25th. So okay. it, it's not been that long. It has not been that long. So no, I'm still a little jet lag. It's okay. Um, thank you for coming on to this. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. This episode. Um, the, uh, um, can you walk us through what 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 you do? I mean, where did you go? Okay, so uh, I was there for uh, 20 days. Jeez. I flew into Sydney, and then from Sydney we kind of went made a beeline for some of the national parks around there uh every different place we went to we had different animals we were going to look for so uh you know sydney blue mountains royal national park was the three places we went to in that area Mm. it was uh almost all diamond pythons i went to different places where people had seen them before so yeah royal national park was beautiful uh people say that i think even some papers have been written that show that they'll migrate to uh, the rock ledges over there during the winter time to warm up, and they'll move mm-hmm. back into the inland uh, during the summer. But I looked around there; I didn't see any. Uh, it was a little cold. Then we drove okay. to uh, Royal National Park, or not Royal National Park, the uh, the Blue Mountains, and uh, I did have one kind of thrown on my lap there. <laughs> what, kind what of do you a funny story. Like... Yeah, go. So me and my buddy <laughs> were walking. Uh, to a place called Acacia Campground, which is basically a straight-down walk. Mm-hmm. Like, it's probably like a 60-degree angle, almost directly down. And along that walk, we meet a couple that I think they were from Europe. And they're like, hey, be careful. There's a uh, point where you cross the river, and uh, there's a big snake um, on this log. And I stop immediately and like, what it looked like? And they're like, well, it was, it was black <laughs> and yellow. I'm like, that's a diamond python. Show it to me. And they showed me a picture, and there's this huge diamond python in shed in this rock crevice. I was like, where did you find it? Can you take me there? I think at one point I literally said, I will pay you to take me there. And my buddy's like, dude, shut up and just let them show you where it is. No, no, dude, no, no, no. I had 40 bucks in my pocket. I gladly would have given that to show me. (laughs) 
they didn't end up going with us, but they showed me like pictures of the area around where it was. So, yeah, they they were they were about fifty percent sure you were going to try to take a kidney. So you know that's <laughs> you know, but all right. So so I start like running down this mountain, and my buddy who's mm-hmm. a hiker at one point stops. He's like, "Stop it! You're going to hurt yourself. You need to stop and get water and eat." Like this guy's the only reason I'm still alive on this trip. I would have died of dehydration and starvation a long time ago. But eventually we get down to the bottom, and there's a part where uh, the trail forks into three places, and we have not crossed a river yet. So I'm like, dang it, I don't know which way they came from. So we had to, like, pull out a map and look around. We found the one place where it crossed water. And this is, like, two hours later, so I'm like, it's going to be gone. It's not going to be there anymore. I'm going to miss out. We get to the – we find on the map. We walk up the trail. We start walking across the log. And right in that little tree hollow is a wrapped-up diamond python. <laughs> and it was awesome. It was so cool. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and we're talking, like, this was not some, like, Sydney suburb, like, road cruise diamond python. This is an animal that, like, eats eastern water dragons and was missing chunks of its tail and, like, had scars up its body. Like, okay. this thing had been through the ringer. Okay. Yeah, I went back uh, later that night. I recorded temperatures near freezing on the log it was at. It was cold there. Okay. But, yeah. I'm. I mean, uh, the uh, uh, Nick, have you been to uh, where? Where'd you say this place was, Casey? This was uh, the Blue Mountains National Park. Sorry, I'm kind of like gonna take a chunk of this episode to talk about this trip. If you let me, no. Just kind of no, let me get. Let me show you the highlights. No, it's but, okay. Yeah, I'm, yeah, gonna, I was, I'm gonna suffer. I was hoping you would, Casey. You know, I'm going to suffer because Casey's going to tell us about Australia, and then we're going to have a week off where I can cry, and then Nick and or Eric's going to come back and talk about his trip to Australia. So this is really just daggers into my stomach. So, but go on. Um, but no, uh, you're asking Nick, Nick a question though. Yeah, yeah uh, Nick, have you been to uh, this place to look for diamonds where Casey was? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Um, I don't. Kind of, I don't know if that's yes or no. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> but <laughs> all right. Um, uh, why don't you? Um, I don't know if he's muted or not. I don't know what's going on here. So we'll see. I'll keep trying to see if I can get my Hobbit to pay attention. But um, anyway, Casey. Uh, so you found the diamond. Obviously, did you? Are you allowed to touch it, or is it one of those things I, that I I cannot? Okay, so I touched it. Um, I don't. I took a video of it. I don't know if I should post it though, because I've gotten in trouble of posting me being places I'm not supposed to be before, and gotten in trouble like years later. I've been down this road before, and I don't know if I want to do it again. But it's a really good video. All right, so. You, you can't confirm or deny if you touched it or not. So I yes. got you. So somehow it magically got out of the tree hollow, though, for pictures in a video. So <laughs> gotcha. So what? How many days was that? Was that like day one into this thing? No, that was day. Um, I want to say it was like day four. Okay. So it's, so, like, it's not like perfect, but you're still pretty no, early. We in saw the trip we saw some huge diamond. eastern water dragons day one though. Jesus. They're all over the place. It's like a Knowles in Florida. Like they're that's, they're just everywhere. That's insane. So, um, I am gonna pause but, you one quick sec before we get totally into this thing, 
because I wanted to ask Austin about his tub breeding of bread live yeah, before we go, go deep into this. Austin, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, yes, I got you. So you okay. were working with the Christmas tree tubs, and you said that you managed to breed them inside those tubs. Was it difficult? Uh, no, run into th- this this year will be the first year that I'm going to try a couple of pairs oh. in, the, uh, in the Christmas okay. tree tubs. Uh, but I have housed them in there together, and uh, I don't know whether uh, copulation happened or not during that time because that's what I housed them in during their cool down in my garage. Okay. So um, I typically house them separately during cool down uh, from like December through to the first of February, mm-hmm. and uh, and I uh, uh, like that last week of cool down, I'll put the male with the female, just kind of as like a preliminary uh, pair up kind of, and then when I move them in, I I uh, well obviously I put them in their cages, and then I didn't get to talk about. Uh, my maternal incubation, the way that I did that. Um, yeah. So I use cypress mulch on all of my uh, adults in their cages, and I and I I use a pretty thick, heavy layer of it. Uh, it's probably like three or four inches deep. And uh, so what I do is I just use a hide. It's a it's like a pressed kind of it's like those pressed plastic hides, but really really mm-hmm. large. It's massive because my females are pretty big. I've got a Harris line female that's. She's definitely eight foot, maybe a little bit longer than that. Yeah. And I don't power feed her. She's not, I mean, she just is big. They're just she's monsters. not like obese or anything like that. She's just a huge animal. Yeah. And, how many uh, eggs do you get? So how she, many eggs do you get out of a, how many eggs do you get first, out of an eight foot snake? Her first clutch gave me uh 21 mm. and two slugs. And then uh, her last clutch that she gave me, it was, including slugs, is 26 eggs. So she's going up each time she lays. Yeah, um, I, I would agree because I have two girls that size, and I got uh, into the 20s as well. And it's weird because I have coastals the same size, and they'll lay 30 eggs. So I don't know what's up with that. So, um, so she laid in that plastic hide on top of the the mulch, and uh, I, it was my first time maternally, first and only time maternally incubating. And I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to try this my own way. You know, I didn't use any kind of, like, lay box with the bottom or any sphagnum moss or anything like that. And she, she's a real good mom. She Every time she lays, she's is a perfect beehive, and, and she coils them so well you can't even see the white. And uh, uh, so I was like, okay. And I just kind of let it ride. And the way that I dealt with uh, humidity is I would just go in there with my uh, little spray gun, and I would soak all the mulch in the entire cage just spray it down like super mm-hmm. soaked but not any of the mulch that was underneath that hide and uh i had i guess you would say 99 percent hatch rate i only lost one animal out of that out of that clutch yes. and it was a fully formed animal that was dead in the egg i don't know what the deal was it wasn't moldy or anything like that it just maybe it maybe it lost its egg tooth i couldn't i couldn't tell so yeah uh, Sometimes, but uh, I mean, like I that, had yeah. awesome success. But I think I attribute that to her being such a good mom. You know, um, I didn't really Are do you... much. I just kind of made sure that the humidity was good. <laughs> I put the boy in there, and that's it. Um, are you yeah. gonna? Um, are you gonna have her do that again? Uh, I don't know if I, I'm still on the fence whether I'm gonna breed that female this year. She had last mm. year off. She's definitely ready. She she and honestly, that that maternal incubation because I said she's such a robust female. It didn't yeah. take a lot out of her. She didn't look like death or anything when she got off of those eggs. She she looked yeah. pretty, pretty decent. But I went ahead and gave her a year off, and uh, 
I've got a mail that I could put to her. I just haven't decided whether I want to do it just for the sake of doing it. So I probably won't. Yeah. And uh, I've got a, a LASIK line female that I've that she's unproven. And then I've got my a fours line male that I'm gonna. That's the Brettles uh, project that I'm working this year. And I'll probably do it very similar to that one just because it's what worked. So yeah. and if she's a good mom, I'll let her maternal. If she's not, then I can always artificial. I've got the incubator, so. That is true, and you know I'm just waiting for you to be like, and now the pop one pythons get to try to breed. Uh, so yeah, you know. that's that's a couple years out, man. They take a, they Damn take it. some time. Well, that's good. I can have they time to time. move, I guess, to a farm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, can I uh, can I ask uh, Austin a question real quick? No, this is my show. You can't do any of those oh. things here. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Shoot, <laughs> yeah, um, have you ever weighed your babies? Austin, because I've got a huge female too, and I've noticed her babies are way bigger than like the average from Nick's book. So uh, the I've weighed my babies. I've only weighed that first clutch. The last maternal, I didn't. I wish I would have because they definitely came out a lot bigger. I just didn't do it. I don't know why, but you know, you know how those things go. But my uh, yeah, the artificial uh, babies, the, the artificial incubation babies that I did were in that range. That was it, like twenty-two to thirty grams? Isn't that what it is in the in the book? Yeah, I think average is supposed to be twenty-four. Because yeah. I know yeah. my huge female think, lays like massive eggs, <laughs> and they come out yeah, like thirty-four I grams. That, I think my first my my first clutch, uh, the biggest baby was twenty-eight grams. I, and I, I honestly wish I had the data for you on the maternal. And if I do it again this year, I'll definitely weigh the babies. But I just didn't last year for some reason. That's all good. But, yeah. Awesome. All right. So let's jump back in with we now rejoin Casey on his adventure. Um, touching or not touching a diamond python. We can't confirm that. Um, and <laughs> all right. So after you were done with that, where did you guys go? Um, well, we went to Tasmania after that. You oh, damn it! All yeah. right, that's. Right. I, I have a I have a small obsession with devils, but anyway, I saw one. Um, <laughs> <you bastard>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, how was Tasmania compared to Australia? Okay, so Tasmania is really weird. Like you go okay. there. And it's extremely – I don't know how else to describe it, but it's gray. Like mm. it is – everything's gray except for the trees, which are like the deepest green you've ever seen. Okay. So like the bottom of it, um, it's all farmland. It looks mm. like New Zealand. You know, it's like the Shire. Uh, you start going up. There's, you know, there's forest, and then you hit a point where all of a sudden you're climbing up the top of this mountain – and it reminds mm. me a little bit of what Ari's talking about with the Bowens Python country, where mm. you get towards the top, and then it gets flat, and then there's a swamp. <laughs> and it's so weird, because you're walking, okay. like, straight up a mountain, and then you're at the top, and it's like a lake, a swamp, marshes. There's Bennett's wallabies everywhere. There's wombats. Uh, there's a really, like – it's really kind of strange there. Uh, all of Australia is like this, where, like – there were no hoofed animals, so okay. the kangaroos kind of took over those niches, where mm. instead of rabbits, you'll have, like, tiny little bitty wallabies. In Tasmania, they're called patty melons. They look just like a rabbit. They act just like a rabbit. <laughs> and then, like, you have these Bennett's wallabies, which are kind of like a mountain sheep. So you find them, like, way, way up in the mountains. You find them way down. And then you have, like, these gray kangaroos, which are pretty much like deer. 
Mm. And they're everywhere. They're all over the place once you get to a, like a wild place. Hmm. So, okay. So yeah, we saw those guys. We saw um, we saw some snow there, which I was not expecting in Australia. Yeah. Well, I guess because you're going the other direction, where it's going to get colder because of how south you're going. Yeah, that was That's weird nuts. too because uh, yeah, it was like the wind is coming up from Antarctica, right? Yeah. So when the wind blows, it's freezing cold. There's like snow flurries, especially when you're going up a mountain. Because we yeah. climbed a place called Walls of Jerusalem, and then we climbed uh, kind of the classic tourist uh, Cradle Mountain. So we got to the top of two mountains over there. And you're walking up there, and it'll be like freezing cold when the wind's blowing. You're putting your jacket on. You're bundling up. The wind stops blowing, and it's like immediately 70 degrees. <laughs> and you're like sweating, and you've got to take everything off, and the wind kicks back up again. And it's it's. I ended up making what I call a Tasmanian poncho, where I took my down jacket and then like tied it off to one shoulder, so I like covered my torso. <laughs> <laughs> my friend said it made me look like a dweeb, but I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> hey, whatever makes whatever. you feel good in the situation. Yeah, so you, you weren't you weren't tracking Tazzy tigers or anything like that. Man, no. after being there, I I think they're extinct. Like, I saw, like, how many animals that a Tasmanian tiger could clearly come out and eat, and nobody's seen one for 100 years. Unless they're, like, way out in the southeastern part of Tasmania, which apparently, like, you can walk for nine days and not see a house. Yeah, I just, really? I don't know, man. I don't think those things are there anymore. I I was disappointed because I was hoping I'd be there, like, yeah, there's hope. I just, I don't see it. <laughs> so what you're saying is that if the Tasmanian tiger is officially extinct, that there's no way that there could be anything such as Bigfoot. Cool. Thanks, Casey. Oh, I saw moving Yowie on. out there. No, yeah, they're late. all over the place. No, we're moving on. We're moving <laughs> on. <laughs> That's totally real. Damn it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, aside from the aside from uh, the ruse and stuff like that, I mean, uh, what else did you really kind of catch up in Tasmania? I mean, you said you saw the devil, which is, you know. Yeah, I'm we saw one. And they're bigger that. than you'd expect. Like, I, I thought know. they'd be, like, a little Jack Russell thing, but they're, like, a bulldog. Nah, dude. <laughs> they're big. So, yeah. It's nuts. All right. So, uh, there's also Tasmania. a species of blue-tongued skink there. And I saw a dead one on the road, and it had just been killed, I could tell, uh, as soon as we pulled up to it. And it's one of those okay. things where, like, nobody's really ever done any work with blue-tongued skinks, but I guarantee you if somebody did... The Tasmanian blotched would be either a different species or a different subspecies because they look completely different. Really? Do we have um, – I want to see a picture of these guys because I, I, I want to say I've seen them here. Do we have them in – We have blotched here. Uh, there's blotched yeah. over in Victoria and New South Wales that are like black and yellow or black and orange. The ones that are down in Tasmania, I think there might be some in Canada, but I'm not sure. But they're like gray and like a bluish – like yeah. another bluish gray, and then they have like a reddish head. Like they look completely different than the blotch you see up in New South Wales. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so is this? Do you kind of see from, from going there that, that if there had been maybe some more research or some more projects or programs done, that some of the nomenclature that we kind of hold true would be completely different right now? Uh, I mean, like there's really no work on skinks. I think like yeah. the skink community actually kind of gets on my nerves. I love blue-tongued skinks, but <laughs> I don't like the blue-tongued skink people that much. <laughs> I think they're wrong, and a lot of their names are stupid. 
Like, <laughs> why are you calling a skink that's all over Papuan Island a Morocco? And why are you calling them IJs when they're from both sides of the island? It makes no. It's stupid. It makes no sense. And I will stand up for that. I did not did not realize that the skinks were going to trigger Casey, and I apologize for everybody. But um, that's awesome. All right. So, um, is that like you know uh, what else did you guys do around Tasmania, or was that like a couple days? It was. Uh, it was four days. It was all mountain climbing. My buddy that went with Jeez. me is uh, like a really avid backpacker hiker. So that was like completely his thing. And it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. You know, we saw some parrots and stuff. Uh, you'd be really surprised, like, just how many cockatoos are all over the place out there. <laughs> Great. Like, just everywhere, <laughs> all over all over Australia. I, I, I'll admit that um, I went to uh, Alaska and the first thing I saw coming out of the plane was a bald eagle sitting on like a, <laughs> on a bench. And I'm like, holy crap. And then uh, my aunt who was who lives up there was like, you're going to have to knock that off because, you, yeah. And I'm like, what do you mean? And then like we drive down the street and I counted like 20 bald eagles just randomly mm-hmm. places, like one on a McDonald's sign, one in a dumpster. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah, they've lost their, you know, I, I'm, I'm done now. <laughs> I freaked out over the first one, but after this, I'm done. So, yeah, I, I got you. Jaded real quickly. You do. <laughs> so, it's like when you go to Yellowstone, you see bison for the first time. The first one you see, you take 40 pictures of it, and then you're driving down the road like, oh, it's a bison. Goddamn cow, get out of the way. You're like, yeah. I got you. <laughs> so, oh, there's stories right. about that in Alice Springs. Okay, so after Tasmania, where did you guys go after that? After that, we flew from, like, the coldest part of Australia right up mm. into Alice Springs. Holy and hell. we're flying into this part. We're about to drop down. My buddy's got the window seat, and he looks mm. over, and there is, like, Mars. You're, like, looking over the surface of Mars. It's red. There's nothing alive. And he looks over at me, and he's like, what the heck are we doing here, man? Like, <laughs> it's like, what are we? Damn well there's no reason here. we should be here. <laughs> Mad Max stuff. Dude, it looks just like Mad Max. Jesus. All right. So you land, so and we, where do you guys go? We land in Alice Springs. We go straight to the Woolworths because he told me we had to. And Woolworths, that's like, I don't know, that's like a grocery store. Like right. a little food-only grocery store. I wanted to go straight over to Trofina Gorge, and, you know, I wouldn't have bought any food or water, and I would have died. Like I said, I should not be trusted alone. <laughs> Thank God there was a non-reptile person to keep Casey alive. <laughs> God, we got to have him on here sometime. He could make fun of me the whole time. It's great. Well, yeah, he'd be like, and that's when we would have died. But luckily, <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> But, yeah, we we got food, we got our rental car, all that stuff. We wasted so much animal time doing (laughs) non-essential stuff like that. Like getting supplies to live. How dare they? (laughs) Getting water in a desert, yeah. What an asshole. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But, yeah, we start driving down the road. And, you know, you're making, like, little mental pictures in your head of what it's going to be like. Mm. And, uh so we're talking here the whole time about how tough Brettles pythons are. Oh, you know, they're amazing. They're the most cold tolerant animal ever. You know what else is out there mm. that I ran over with a car on accident? Because there's oh so many God. of them. Yeah, no. You know what's out there? Central what? bearded dragons. Oh. <laughs> oh, damn. Yeah, like the most common lizard in captivity is out in this probably harsher environment than the Brettles pythons are in. And people still screw them up. <laughs> yes, I took pictures. I'm going to post it sometime. 
in like one of these little like beardy mommies groups and I'm like look here's where these things actually live I've been there I've seen them there's wait, sand wait. everywhere it's 100 degrees during the day and it's 60 degrees at night where do they get their hammocks and their wonderful <laughs> little like you know collar leashes are those just and, provided and to them hats. in the wild <laughs> yeah yeah they grow on trees out there no, I knew it. <laughs> yeah, there's also uh, Aki monitors live out there too, and we oh. saw tons of like little black-headed monitors and sand. Like, there's monitors all over the place. Jesus. But uh, yeah, you drive you, there. Um, you see, and any, you didn't see any Mertens monitors, or is that are they kind of a little bit of a different place? Um, I'm gonna have to send you guys some pictures. I don't know my monitors Ooh. that well. All right. Okay. Um, I definitely saw a uh, Parenti, but it was dead. Oh. Well, yeah, somebody hit it with a car. Yeah, that sucks. But yeah, but you you're driving out there, and it's like, mm-hmm. it, the, there's a reason why it's called the bush because there's like there's just shrubs and bushes everywhere and like tall grass and sand. <laughs> and then you get to a place, you're gonna see a sign that says floodway, and that pretty much is right where you need to be looking for Brettles pythons because it's a dry riverbed. They only live in the dry riverbeds. They're not like a rattlesnake that's actually out in the middle of the desert. They're like okay. in the only forest in the uh, this whole arid landscape. Okay. So, yeah, you see that like going right over to Trofina Gorge, which is the first place we went to. And, you know, we set up our tent, blah, blah, blah. There was a dingo. And <laughs> so we put on our headlamps, and we start walking the bottom of the gorge back and forth. And we're seeing, uh, we found two Stinson's pythons the first night. Maybe three, I don't know. I think one of them might have been the same Stinson's python. (laughs) It's hard to tell they move. (laughs) We saw these little um, Australian velvet geckos, which those are super cool. I I know a couple people who keep those, and I didn't know they were from the same place. Well, I've heard that they're really cool to keep, and I also heard that they're, uh, are they the ones that don't eat their sheds? Oh yeah, that's the thing about them. Yeah, they yeah. um, yeah, they don't shed their exactly. skin, so you can put rat on them. Yeah, that's or whatever true. people do. I, I've heard that the people keep telling me to do that for some of the um, boas that I have because if you can just wrap a pinky with gecko shed, sometimes you can avoid the whole crap of having to go get a live anole lizard or something like that. So I've tried that with the hatchling pygmies. Has has it worked? I I had a pair of those guys. Uh, unfortunately, it, that it seemed like their shed was as good as any lizard shed. Got it. Okay. So it's not like the magic pill. I, right now, I'm on the no, but frog it's but it's great tent. that it, it's great that they don't eat their shed because it's always there mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, that's that. I like that one. So, all right, cool. So, Casey, anything else in the riverbed? Uh, that morning, we were driving beside mm-hmm. a riverbed. And there was a Brettles python, and it was awesome. So <laughs> so we're driving. I look over on the side of the road, and there's this massive Brettles python just stretched out. Did you jump out. out of a moving car? Did you jump did out of not. a moving car? I've done that before, and I got yelled at. So I've, I've learned how to not do that. <laughs> I, I had a really bad incident with that once. Bit. But anyway. <laughs> so my right. I'm like, Brettles, stop. He slams on the brakes. I get out. I run towards this thing, and I just got to take it in because it's like – it's got way more yellow and it's orange than any captive brittles I've seen. 
Like it's I've described yeah. it as being like the color of peanut butter versus yeah. like the red or orange or brown you see um, in captive ones. And I don't know if that's a locality thing or like it's their version of a suntan or what. I, I still am not sure where I stand on all that. Uh, I have to kind of do some more tests. <laughs> it, but, it, it was, to be completely honest... It was one of the most stunning bread lie I've ever seen. Me too. (laughs) It was like, it was one of those, I'm like, dear Lord, that is pretty. I wish it was curled um, up, though, so I could get a better picture of it. Like, it was completely stretched out, so I couldn't get a good picture. Um, I did pick it up trying to do a video, and uh, it was not happy about being picked up. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. didn't. No, 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 I was a good little boy and did not pick up the bread python. (laughs) Katie's going to get arrested. Come on. Light you up. Dude, if you look at the video, um, you'll see that I've got my left hand behind my back. And it's not because I'm trying to do the Jurassic World pose. It's because my hand is literally, like, (laughs) dripping with blood. Oh, yeah. Did he get you? Oh, yeah. See, and I bet you weren't even mad. (laughs) Oh, it was cool. It was so cool. My buddy was worried about me, though. He's like, dude, do we need to go to the hospital? <laughs> so you didn't touch the snake, the snake touched you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had to defend myself against the snake. Oh, God. Funny. That is so cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna um rethrow the pictures of your bread lie into the NPR chat here real quick. Yeah. Just so everybody who maybe has not seen him uh or her, uh I did right not get there. to see what uh, gender it was. It would not be. It wouldn't be happy. It was, with a, wild it was a wild animal. Casey, yeah. when you, <laughs> Casey, when you say peanut butter, it reminds me of the color I see from striped bread lie. That's like not a chocolate like peanut that. butter color. Like not like chocolate peanut butter. Like like that orangey yellowish peanut butter you get yeah. at the store. The, but like the, to be honest, like the fake with, dollar store peanut butter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that stuff. Yeah, the one you got to mix but, in then, case it like separates. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but to to be honest, if this I I out of all my I only have LASIK bread lye, with the exception of my stone wash, and uh, the stone wash LASIK too. Damn it! <laughs> um, anyway, with, with one exception, with a couple exceptions, it's, it's popped up recently. But anyway, yeah. Whatever. Anyway. Um, I would just say that this thing is nowhere near with color wise, my guys. Uh, but of course, you know, maybe it's all fired up because it's in direct sunlight. Uh, but again, if, if this was in a collection here, I would say that this thing is, you know, something's up with this one. Or I would too. You know, if somebody yeah. offered me that thing at a show, I would think it was a more. I buy it immediately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So figure out everything. I'd be like else it's later. some kind of caramel or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. That's cool. So, I mean, like, obviously, at that point, you've now hit the pinnacle of what you wanted to see and what you were really hoping to see, and, you know. I was much calmer the rest of the trip. I was okay. really, when I'm out looking for stuff, like, I get antsy until I see it, and then I'm like, okay, you know, it's fine. I was hoping we'd find a couple more, but I'm I'm kind of a pain to be around until I find what I'm looking for. <laughs> Casey's like, all right, we can go home now. <laughs> Pretty much, because that place, man, you go over to, you drive around Alice Springs, mm. and, okay, so it's it's 100 degrees during the day. You are being swarmed by black flies. Like, oh. they, they don't bite you, 
but it's like their sole purpose in life to go in your eyes and nose. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Like my like Did you my friend that? who like has hiked from Georgia to Pennsylvania almost had a breaking point because the flies kept going in his mouth. Like everybody <laughs> has a breaking bring, point on a trip like this, and that was almost his. You didn't bring a uh, – Austin, are you saying, like, did he bring, like, a net, like a, one of those? Oh, yeah, yeah we had like a net. A, like, like a hat net, like a hat net. A hat yeah, net, we eventually yeah. wore those things, yeah. but <laughs> – Yeah, the saving grace, so cool. though, is um, yeah. some of these places you stay at, those be, they'll be like a swimming hole, right? Yeah. And the water will be, like, probably 60 degrees, and yeah. it feels fantastic when it's 100 degrees you, outside. And, and when you jump into the water because it was 100 degrees – how long until you, like, when you're waist deep in the water, do you immediately think crocodile? Because I would. Oh, there's no crocodiles out there. That's, ah. that's the good thing. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's in Australia. I automatically think <laughs> crocodiles. Trust me, man. <laughs> like, we had an incident in uh, Ormiston Gorge mm. where we didn't know there was a water hole. Because my, my friend and I, we tried to be uh, nocturnal, right? Because there's no, right. it, it's 100 degrees during the day and it's room temperature at night. Okay. You know, so it's fantastic outside. When we were out there, there was a full moon. So mm-hmm. you can see there's no flies. There's some mosquitoes, but you got bug spray. It'll stop those. We're trying to sleep in our tent in our Mist and Gorge. And I have my temp gun with me. And the inside of the tent, I clocked uh, 140 degrees. Holy so he and I, whoa. like, sweating. We're almost delirious. Oh. My God. That's crazy, man. That's insane. Yeah. I don't know how you could sleep in that. Uh, I didn't. Nah, no, I we, we eventually, oh, okay. like, we literally packed our stuff up, and we were going to go drive somewhere else. And then we stopped yeah. by, like, the map, and we saw there's a swimming hole, like, across the road. So yeah. we unpacked our, we repacked our stuff, put a, you know, drove back around, took everything out, put the tent back up, and then we went swimming for the rest of the day. Jesus. And then we walked around our Mist and Gorge that night, and we saw a bunch of, uh, well, the Varanus Tristis, the black-headed oh, wolf yeah. monitors. Yeah. yeah, those guys were out a lot. Didn't find any more bread light that whole trip, which uh, was kind of disappointing. But apparently finding one is a real rarity. Hey, at least you didn't get a big goose egg on the trip. I mean, that's pretty yeah. cool. You got, you yeah. got one, and it was, an impre- it was an impressive animal, you know? You, yeah, it was like kinda, the king of all bread light. It was super yeah. cool. And you kind of hit it with, you know, you get diamond python on day four, and then you go get a exactly. brill. I mean, you know, that's you, – yeah. so far, you know, Eric has a pretty big thing to have to follow up on this. I mean, and he will be judged harshly. So, you know, <laughs> Jesus. Um, but that is that is really, really cool. And I, I it just – again, thinking about it, it's like, yeah, it's 104 degrees in your guy's tent. And this uh, is where I live. Yeah, he said, <laughs> 40. I, I mean, it's not that hot switched. outside, but like the, no, temp- the surface temperature. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But still, I mean, like, you know, this is where these things are living. That's insane. So, all right. So, I mean, you guys hung around the Brettle area for a little bit longer or? For a week. Uh, we were out there Jesus. for an entire week. Uh, okay. We eventually did what's called the Marini Loop, which is like. There's two, which is uh, Aluru, the big giant Ayers Rock in the middle of Australia that's super famous. Yeah. There's two ways to get there. There's the, uh, you drive down a highway way, and then there's like the dirt road in the middle of nowhere way. And we took the dirt road in the middle of nowhere way. Of course. Yeah. Because we got a four-wheel drive, and it's fantastic. Right. But, okay, something weird about Australia, Eric, that you need to know. 
I'm you know how when you're driving down like rural roads in America, <laughs> okay. there'll be like horses and stuff and behind fences behind the uh, mm-hmm. like on the side yeah. of the road. Over okay. there, they just yeah. put up grates and you drive over these grates. There's fences going a long ways both ways, and uh, there could be cows in the road because you're driving through somebody's pasture or leased land or whatever it is. Oh, great! There's areas okay. like that so, down here in Texas. Oh, I believe it. Like. Honestly, man, yeah. I bet if you wanted to, you could totally keep your brittles outside almost year-round. I so much like Texas. <laughs> I, I think that I, I think that excluding like maybe a month, I could. It gets pretty pretty cold up. I'm in North Texas, so it right. gets pretty cold in about January, February, like that little month. Those two months right there, you, I, it would be like I could I could probably do about ten months out of the year, and which would be cool. I've actually talked to my wife about. Um, setting a building a an area like building a pen like a pen out of uh, mechanics mesh and like cementing it all in the ground and doing doing it uh legit and it, yeah. it may be in the near future that I build an outdoor, uh, outdoor yeah you closure. should give it a whirl so, we uh yeah, um, I'm definitely we, not opposed to it yeah after this trip I'm thinking about doing it with diamonds well I mean down here in Georgia you can keep those it. things <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, Jeff Frederick is the guy who designs all the T-shirts for us for Carpet Fest, as well as a bunch of other stuff. And if you've ever been to Bill Stiegel's house, it apparently just decorates bills. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, he he has an outdoor pen for his bread lie for the summertime, and he lives in Maryland. So during the summer, he'll have his bread lie stay outside, depending on how the weather is and stuff like that. And then he does eventually bring them indoors, uh, you know, when it gets to, like, 30 degrees here so it can be done depending on the temperatures so i wouldn't i would say that yeah probably austin could probably stretch that what two months three months probably into like 10 11 i mean i think i think a good solid 10 months i mean maybe even 11 depending on the year that we're having i could do it here honestly yeah yeah i mean crutch really keeps his diamonds out outside year round so and he's in florida so he's in my like near miami like i said Uh, like I don't remember, but yeah. Somewhere like that, but even yeah. up here in Georgia, like, I could probably keep diamonds. I think as long as a week had, like, <clears throat> like say, four out of seven days above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, like, mm-hmm. after being out there, I'd be completely comfortable keeping diamonds outside. Jeez. I mean, and if you do it like, like some people do it with the whole heated hide box and all that crap, you almost don't even have to worry about bringing them in because they're going <laughs> to find that microclimate and, and, and put deal. themselves up, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. So. So, all right. So, there are cows. What now, Casey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, like, that's why they say you probably shouldn't road cruise. It's not because you'll hit a kangaroo. Actually, in Central Australia, yeah. I saw one wallaby and no kangaroos, which is weird really? because that's where they're supposed to be. Yeah. yeah. Like, that's huh. where the kangaroos are supposed to live, and I didn't see a single one. All right. Uh, they say there's supposed to be a bunch of venomous snakes and spiders. I saw that eastern brown snake, and that's the only, like, highly venomous snake I saw. My buddy may have seen a brown snake in New South Wales, but I didn't get to see it, and it kind of got gone before we could really get a picture of it. Okay. You know, we saw some spiders and stuff in the water, but I really think people thinking Australia is dangerous. It's really, at least from my limited experience, wasn't really the case. Yeah. Jeez. But the the eastern okay. brown snake's kind of a funny story though. Go ahead. So 
there's a place that's called um, Red Bank Gorge where there's a big swimming hole in there. It's about a 30-minute walk from the car, the place mm-hmm. you can park. And you can swim into this gorge. <laughs> so we're swimming in there a little bit. My buddy's he's terrified of water. Like, that's his thing. Is he's so scared of, like, any, like, dark water he can't see the bottom of. So I'm laughing my butt off, and I look over, and there's this eastern brown snake. And the <laughs> walls aren't that thick. So, like, five feet maybe is the most we got to be able to get away from this thing. Ooh. And we're trying to, like, swim no. around it. It's like a Disney ride. You know, like, over, yeah, at, like yeah. at, over at the Disney parks, are like, well, watch out, everybody. There's a, uh, there's a dangerous <laughs> snake right there. Don't let it bite you. Except it was oh real life. God. Uh, except it was actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. Except, you know, death could just happen at any moment. Yeah, exactly. God. So we're oh, swimming dude. around this thing. And even if you were bit, you're 30 minutes from the car. Yeah, let alone the hospital. Oh, my God. Which is, a, which is an let airport. Let alone the venom they fly you out of there. things insane. <laughs> oh my god. No. Alright. So you're, so you're yeah, so we swim in the dark water and stuff. <laughs> we get to the point where he doesn't want to go any further. I make him go a little bit further. I promise him I'd go skydiving with him if we went a little bit further because I'm terrified of falling down. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we got into the inside of it. It was pretty creepy. And then we we got out of there, and the brown snake was still there, so we had to, like, scooch around the brown snake again. Jesus. That's insane. Oh, I was laughing so hard the whole time, though. It was was the funniest thing ever. Oh, my God. So, did you finish up the trip there, or did you end up going to other places? Um, Okay, so after the week in Alice Springs, we flew back to Sydney for one more night. Uh, Did the classic touristy thing of, I saw the opera house, I touched it, and we left. <laughs> Tag. All right, we can go now. It's yeah, like, pretty okay. much. I got a little video of it. <laughs> all right. So, um, Alan, all how was the travel? I mean, how was the trip? Um, you mean the flights or just the travel? All of it. Like, I mean, how was the? Okay, so driving around's great. Um, okay. I got. We had an incident in a suburb in Sydney called Liverpool where I yelled at everybody in the entire world. Uh, because I almost pulled, I pulled in the wrong lane and almost got in a crash. And oh my I kinda, god! I get really nervous in Sydney and cities in America. Like I don't like to drive and navigate in cities. So now you add on the fact that like you got to drive on the wrong side of the road and the steering wheel's on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> who who told us uh, we were on? We had somebody on the show who was saying like. You know, it's not going to be the first time, but it's going to be like the second or third time that you're in Australia. You're just going to accidentally yeah, that's, that's pull that's into a the Nick wrong quote. lane. Was it Nick? <laughs> All right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he I... told me the same thing, and it happened. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, once you're driving in the countryside, it's pretty easy because you're just going a straight line. Yeah. But, yeah, when you're in, like, four lanes of traffic and, like, there's roundabouts everywhere, and I hate roundabouts. Oh, God, it's like New Jersey. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, renting cars is pretty simple. Um flying going to Sydney was not bad. Okay. Um I was able to get a little bit of sleep on the plane. Right. Uh you know, airports there are way easier to navigate. Okay. Uh coming back though, mm-hmm. I uh I didn't sleep for like 27 hours. Oh my god, dude. And I'm one of those guys that like if I stay up to like 
maybe my my tipping point's about like three thirty, right? And yeah. then my stomach just starts dying. So you add on like being sleep deprived in a plane that starts jolting. And if somebody had punched me the wrong way, I would have thrown up on everybody in the plane. <laughs> and I'm like I'm kinda antsy too, so I can't sit still for very long. Right. So I'm having to like sit on my feet and like get up and move around every couple hours or so. So that was that was a that was a rough plane ride. And the fact yeah. that I feel like everyone around us had a baby. <laughs> and the babies did not like being in that airplane. <laughs> well, this is what Eric gets to look forward to. But I think he's flying to New Zealand and then uh oh, that's to so cool. Australia. Well, he has to go back to the Shire. I mean he he's returning <laughs> to his native home. He's like a baby sea turtle going back to the beach where apparently he was born. So yeah. <laughs> Gotta do Yeah, that. I'm I'm built a bit like Eric. So oh. me and my friend, like we kinda had a little story of like, okay, there's like two little hobbits running around the bush. Somebody's <laughs> gotta be Frodo, somebody's gotta be Sam. I'm clearly Frodo and Sam's keeping me alive right now. <laughs> well well what um and so and, Eric's Frodo and Rob is Sam, I think. Yeah, and then I and then apparently Chris Lemmy's just gonna be there to watch him. So he'd uh, be the golem just egging him exactly. on and trying to start fights. He would, and that's what he does. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I ran into Chris at the White Plains show, and I said, you need to bring one of them back alive. I don't care which one, but I need <laughs> one of them so I can run NPR still. So, you know, that's what, we'll see who comes back. I hope it's Eric. But um, <laughs> uh, anyways, guys, we got like uh, a couple more minutes to close out the show. Casey, I'm sorry, Casey, was that that was the end of the trip, and you came home? Uh, and More or less, yeah. More or less. Is there anything, uh, any other stories that happened there that you wanted to throw out there? I mean, that that we kind of skipped over. Or? Uh, I almost got beat up by a horse in New South Wales. How did that um, happen? <laughs> yeah, so it's one, one of those. So on those country roads, it's the same thing. You just like, I guess there's farmers that had the land forever, and they decide they're going to build a road, mm. and they're like, well, we'll just put a gate on there. So there's literally just signs throughout all of uh, New South Wales that say, close the gate, mate. And oh, my God. <laughs> so I get to one of these things. I already smashed my foot against one because apparently they, like, go from being a foot tall to, like, six inches tall real quick. And my foot was <laughs> under it when it did that. So I'm already kind of limping a little bit from walking around with no shoes on. We get to this gate uh, kind of far in, and a horse sees us walking towards the gate. And it's like, oh. I want out, too. So it stands right in front of our car, and it's, like, kind of nudging me a little bit, like, open the gate, dude. Come on. Let me out, man. So I don't know what to do with horses. Like, I was yeah. not – I like, and it's a giant animal, too. So there's friendly ones, there's mean ones, and you can't really tell which is which until it does something friendly or mean. So I'm kind of just guessing, like, am I about to die? Because this thing – I'm, like, 20 yards from the car. Like, if this thing wanted to beat me up, there's nothing that would stop it from beating me up. Right. So I'm trying to like call it over. My friend's just laughing at me and filming me the whole time. Like, <laughs> where's that? I want that video. Oh, it's up. So... It's up on my page. Oh, good. <laughs> you did better than I would have. I, I don't trust horses. I've had too many bad experiences. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, man. Like everybody that's into horses sketchy, knows man. somebody that's died by a horse. You oh ever notice that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or be or paralyzed or something. Yeah, exactly. Injury. Like, yeah. Jeez. 
hooved in the head and they're drooling now. Yeah. That kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and all I do is get bit by my animals. And I'm fine. So you know, uh, my father-in-law owns a ranch, and I and he's always like, "Man, I can't believe you have them snakes." I'm like, "Man, I'll take a snake over a horse oh, any day." I agree. Any day. <laughs> Give me a 20-foot retake that's pissed off over a, a angry horse. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. Oh, my God. All right. All right. Um, hey, Owen. Hey, Owen, I got a yeah. quick request. Um, Go for it. I'll put Casey on the spot. Casey, you wrote – I saw you wrote somewhere a list of all the lines and morphs we have in the U.S., red lie. Can you list that out? Go Ooh. for it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm interested in that as well. Okay, I uh, probably got to go quick for this. Okay, so we have the LASIK line, which is the first line that was brought into the U.S. Brought in here in 1995. Uh, Casey LASIK brought it in from Sweden. Then you have the Doug Price line, which I kind of call the it might be a line, it might not be a line line, where there's kind of like a sketchy story behind it. He got a pair. He says he got it at a reptile show, but that's like saying you got an Owen Pelly python at a reptile show. Yeah. And they're, like, roughly the same age as Casey Lasik's animals, so, I mean, who knows. But mm-hmm. then you've got the uh, Henrik Afors line, which uh, Nick brought in in, I think, 2007, I think is when he brought those in. Didn't start breeding those until 2012. Same with the Paul Harris line, which he got from Paul Harris. Uh, hypos, I think, are a distinct bloodline. Um, okay, so hypos, they are a morph that... Yes. That's like, right. I, I didn't realize that until recently, that that's a separate line. It's not just a morph. Really? Yeah. yeah. So they've got yeah. like a – it's like a line-bred, multi-gene thing. We, Nick and I kind of like narrowed it down to probably being about like – anyway, you could probably count the number of genes that go into making a hypobrettles on your hand. It's it's a small number. Okay. So it's not like a tiger coastal where if you bred like a tiger to a normal, you'd get somewhere like in all kinds of a spectrum – Right. If you breed a hypo brettles to a normal brettles, you get a spectrum, but some of them look awesome. Some of them look like weird-looking normals. And then there's mm-hmm. a little bit of a spectrum, but not as much as there probably should be if it was a huge number of genes. Okay. Uh, then you have the stonewash gene, which, for all intents and purposes, is a recessive gene. Every once in a while, you can pick out a het. Um which is Which from LASIK. Also the LASIK line, right? Yeah, right. LASIK. Yep. <laughs> you guys, Austin. And then uh, you have the genetic stripe line, which is a recessive stripe. It makes a dorsal stripe going straight down the back. Uh, sometimes it ranges between like a ladder weird look to just a perfectly straight line. Uh, those popped up in 1998 with the very first clutch of Rettles pythons in the U.S. by Casey LASIK. And that's really all the proven morphs. There's a couple weird ones around. There's some, like, reduced pattern spotty ones. Uh, I've got some animals that are full-blooded hypos that are striped. I got them from Mr. Polinsky over here mm-hmm. that I'm going to try to do a uh, striped uh, or a tiger hypobrettles line with that, which will be a line-bred thing. Mm-hmm. That would be nice. Yeah, I think that's, that I think that's coming from my mail because I get – a lot of stripes in the hypo to hypo, and I get stripes in the hypo fours also. So, cool. Yeah, they're really nice looking stripes too. The fours. I really dig your hypo four stuff. Yeah, really I mean, nice. I get yeah, to draw one of those. Eric's. They're pretty awesome. So, 
<sighs> That's awesome, though. Um, and and I think there's isn't there uh, there's probably one or two unconfirmed morphs in Australia. Last time, yeah. Looked, there's correct? um there's a patternless. I've yeah. seen a couple of those pop um around uh somebody. I think in, there's like a couple weird animals uh, in the U.S. and Europe that may or may not ever prove out. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so far those are the only confirmed morphs and bloodlines. Well, we shall see. I would definitely say that breadlie are one of those uh, that I kind of see a brighter future with them. Uh, kind of a little bit more interest, a little bit more stuff, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be because of the morphs like the Stonewash and the Hypo. Even just the line breeding and stuff like that has made them into something that I think people would be drawn to. So, uh, I would definitely yeah, I say that. For for me, what drew what drew me to them is the personality. I, I mean, for the most part, they're they're laid back. I only have a couple of mm. animals that have such a strong feeding response that there's nothing I can do with them except refuse to feed, you know, only feed them and then <laughs> trying to keep them, keep them from feeding on, on me. Um, right. But you guys, they're, they're basically all laid back and they're, you know, they're, they're foolproof. I mean, they're hard mm-hmm. to break, so you can't beat them. <laughs> I think I've got some hypos that hate the world and everything in it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's always, the do you guys one. notice a difference in behavior like of your adult females compared to your adult males? My males are typically real laid back, but I've got a couple females that, whew, I'm talking about our, our females. The two snakes I'm talking about are females. I don't have any okay, males. Okay, good. So there's like a that. little bit of a consensus. Okay, yeah, mo- yeah. All my males are very, very mellow, but I've got a couple females that take your damn head off. Uh, I would <laughs> say I, I only have 2.2, and I would say my girls are laid back, and the stonewash is chill, but the male normal or the male LASIK, he's not mean, but he assumes every time I'm near him, food is coming. So yeah, right, yeah. You just gotta watch him. Yeah. You just gotta. It's it, a food it, response he, thing for sure. Exactly, and he's in his yeah. food response. You know, if a coastal acted the same way, you know, I tap him with the hook and it turns off the food response. He spins and looks at the hook and goes, "Is it over there?" So like, I mean, like, no, it yeah. it takes him a minute or two to figure himself These out. These two females but. that I'm talking about, you tap on the head, it doesn't matter. It, there's no... It <laughs> yeah, same, it's just same here, and it's I'll, I'll use... Yeah, same here. I'll, you know, I'll use a Tupperware container to put, you know, whatever I'm sparkling out of the cage in, and that Tupperware container is in front of their face, and they're going to try and chew through the Tupperware container <laughs> to get to me who's food. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. And I would yeah. also admit that sometimes, because um, I, I, I sold a bread lie to a friend of mine. And this thing had a very big food response. It was a couple year old male and it was, it, it was biting people or, you know, it, they got tagged a couple times and they finally gave it back to me. And I mm-hmm. sent him to somebody else who's sending me pictures of like cuddling with it and holding yeah. it and like it's around their neck. And I'm like, I, it's a completely different snake. And I'm like, that's all right. Well, whatever. <laughs> so sometimes it's just, they're just weird like that. So I don't know. There's always, yeah. there's always hope, huh? Oh yeah. Always. But yeah. maybe you're just anyways. not the right person. That's all. <laughs> exactly. You're just not the right person. But anyways, guys, um, I want you guys to quick go around, um, 
tell me like what you guys have planned this year for your bread lie, you know, how people can get in contact with you and, uh, you know, and basically what you got going on. So, uh, Ralph, why don't we start with you? What projects do you got going on with bread lie this year? Um, I'm, I just started doing my pairings. Um, and it's, it's really too early for bread. I don't expect them to breed, but I, I do the pairings along with everybody else. Um, so I'm for the first time I'm taking uh, a stone wash to a stone wash. Um, and they're, uh, something that I hatched here. Um, I'm in, I'm trying stripes to hypos, uh, stripe to stone washed, uh, hypo to hypo holdbacks. I'm trying to hypo a fours back to a hypo. So that'll be, um, 75% hypo and see where that goes. You know, I, I, I took um, a hypo to a fours, and this a fours is really super, super bright. So what I got was all snakes that look hypo, but it's got a different um, kind of tint to it. I, I like to call it like if you were looking at lipsticks, not that I buy lipstick, <laughs> but <laughs> if you were looking at lipstick, they're just a slightly different shade. And, and okay. I think it's, it's kind, of, kind of beautiful, the hypo fours. Um, so I'm doing a lot of pairings this year, but a lot of them – I'm classifying as possible um, and not too many probables. So I may actually get nothing this year because I'm doing the same thing I did uh, a couple of years ago, three years ago, and I'm trying to breed bretolide that are just over two years old. So we'll see if anybody goes or not. Okay. Um, and I've, I've got last year's hypos and last year hypo fours. And um, it's Midwest Serpentarium. I'm on Facebook, and you can just Google Midwest Serpentarium, and hit me up. Awesome, uh, Casey. What have you got going on? And now that you're back in the uh, U.S. with your guys, um, I'm going to try to breed this year. I kind of mm-hmm. this trip's thrown off my schedule a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got my pair of 2014 hypos. My female didn't want to go last year, so I'm going to give her another round this year. Uh, I've got a pair of double head stonewash stripes. I'm going to give a try to, and uh, that, that's it. I think I'm only going to try two, if I try any at all, because I'm kind of running into a problem where I have a bunch of stuff from last year, or this year. Mm. So, okay. let's see how that goes. All right, and uh, how would people get in contact with you, with you if they want to talk uh, red liars? Just look up uh, Casey Cannon on Facebook. I'm working cool. on getting a page going, a website, but it, it i got to wait. <laughs> Not a top priority. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> I got you. Um, Austin, uh, how about you? Uh, this year, well, I've got, uh, I've got a couple holdbacks from my 2016 clutch, uh, that aren't ready this year. They'll be ready next year, but it's, it's a long game for me. I like, I'm, I'm trying kind of a high contrast deal. I'm trying to use the, that brightness from the afores to, to brighten up the red on the Harris line and take that black, that real deep black that the Harris line has around the pattern around the banding. And, Mm -hmm. uh, keep that but just kind of brighten that red up and then also i don't know if you guys have noticed but some of those hair slime that cream that's in the that's in the banding almost has like a like a really faint green tinge to it i don't know if you guys noticed that but i'm trying to kind of bring that into this and that's kind of my long game plan and so a brighter red and then keep that black around the pattern that'll be next year uh as far as this year uh I'm going to put my forest male to this uh, unproven LASIK female that I have that's kind of weird. She's like 50% uh, black on her tail, but then her red mm-hmm. is a nice 
nice brick red, but her black really comes real far up her body. And a lot of times when you see that, it, it, the red is kind of brown. It, it really muddies up the red, but her red is still very red. So uh, I'm going to put my forest male with her and kind of see what pops out. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of throwing paint at the wall kind of thing and <laughs> see what sticks. And and uh, and um, and then if something good comes out of it, it'll get put into my breeding program. And with this high contrast project that I'm that I'm trying to suss out, you know. Um, I, I like the long game, and I'm not. Yeah, I'm it's not, good stuff, I'm not, I've, it's, I've heard you talk about it before, and I do see green hue. I see it a yeah, lot. Yeah, it's like a in, hue. It's not a great like, color, but yeah. Yeah, I see it a lot in, in like hypos can turn from this bright color to this green hue, and and I see them. I, I don't want to talk over you. <laughs> uh, I see them change That's color okay. a okay. lot from. From from one time of the day to the next, from one day to the next, you know, especially when I'm they have them in a sunny room, but I'll, I'll stop talking. Yeah, now. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Uh, oh, I appreciate it. Uh, it's something that it, this is a passion thing for me, you know, and 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 I hold on to animals for quite a long time before I post them for sale because I'm my best customer and all that jazz. And uh, uh, I, I would say like 50% of each clutch that I produce is is some pretty interesting stuff, and then the rest is fairly normal, you know. Uh, but uh, I've got about three pairs lingering around from uh, the 2017 that are up for sale. So if anybody wants those, they can uh, hit me up on at uh, Rage Beard Reptiles on uh, Instagram and Facebook. I've got a page on both of those. Just message me if you have any uh, questions or anything like that. But other than that, I, I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, give me a platform to talk. So no, definitely. But uh, definitely, thanks Likewise. guys for coming on and uh and talking bread lie and uh especially making it easier for me when uh eric has to go and make sure that he's got a plane to actually get onto, you know <laughs> so uh but it was really cool talking with you guys it was really cool catching up on all this stuff and uh we'll definitely have everybody back again because uh, i'm i don't think we're done talking bread lie i don't think we're ever going to be done so um <laughs> Uh, if there's anything else, either any one of you guys want to throw out there, uh, you know, throw it out now, and then uh, I'll close out the show and we can get out of here. Red light better than jungles and IJs. There you go. 100%. I like that. 100%. 100%. I like that, too. Way better. Damn. All right, well, now that we've thrown the gauntlet, so, you know, let's, let's, just, let's do that. Um, and to answer your question, Casey, it does, but we got six minutes before that happens. So, um, but anyway, so I will now quick do the rundown. You guys can hang out with me till the end, or you guys can peace out now. It's up to you guys. Um, but yep. We'll talk to you guys later. Um, so with me, you can go to rogue-reptiles.com. Check out all the stuff you got we have going on at Rogue. Also, you can go look up Rogue Reptiles on Facebook.com. Uh, this weekend is the December Hamburg Reptile Show. I will not be attending because I scheduled some sort of tattoo appointment that I forgot about. Anyway, so, but uh, my animals will be there bumming off of somebody else's table. So I, I guess I'll be there. <laughs> like partially whatever i won't be there they will be there if you want stuff let me know they can be delivered to hamburg or you can check out the animals that will be there there will be with uh andrew llewellyn of dna exotics and while you're there check out 
uh, his iguanas, his redfoot tortoises, and whatever else he decided to throw up on the table this week. So uh, definitely cool stuff there. For Eric, you can go to ebmorelia.com, see all the stuff he has going on there. I know that he will be busy for the next couple of days, so probably wait till he gets back to contact him about animals. Um, you can also go to moreliapythonradio.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at moreliapythonradio.com. You can also download this podcast on anything that you get your podcast at. So go do that. Upcoming stuff for the show. Uh, We are not having a show next week. So I don't want to hear it. (laughs) I mean, it's, so Tuesday next week, you guys are going to have to think of something else. Or we have a seven-year back catalog that you can go listen to and try to find your one episode. We will be returning once Eric, Rob, and Chris get back from Australia and I stop crying. Um, and we'll have a show ne- uh, the week after that. Uh, and it will be, of course, about their trip to Australia. Uh that's all we have for everybody today. So we're say thank you all for listening, and we will be, we will be back not next week, but the week after for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night, everybody. <laughs>